So Barry Chung's here, cinematographer extraordinaire, Absolutely. colleague in arms. Um, we're going to be nerding out about uh, NAB and stuff today, talking about gear. So if mm. anybody out there has been wondering, why exactly does this filmmaker podcast never talk about filmmaking? <laughs> well, I'm going to break that trend today, goddammit. I'm going I'm to pop the cherry, if you will. <laughs> So did you get a chance to uh, follow any of the coverage this year? I, I did, yeah. I, I, it's always a very exciting time, you know, come April, um, if you're uh, a filmmaker, if you're a cinematographer, if you're um, a gearhead, uh, if you will. Um, and uh, I had the privilege to check out the show about uh, three years ago, I think. I went to the 2012, I think I went to the show. Um, overwhelming. You know, if you've never been, um, it's an exciting uh, adventure. And I would encourage everybody, if they can, sort of take some time for a week in April and can afford to do so, to go down there and really check out the show. There's, there's nothing like being, you know, in Vegas, um, surrounded by all the people, and uh, and get to check out the stuff. It's 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 quite overwhelming. Did they do it at the same hotel each year? Yeah, they do it um, at the uh, I guess the convention center, the Las Vegas Convention Center. There, um, don't quote me on that. I can't remember <laughs> the exact name of the venue, but. It's, There's lots of, lots it, of Las Vegas conventions. Yeah, well, the, what's interesting to me is someone told me once is that Las Vegas is the only place in the world that they can actually have the convention what? because there's no other place in the world that has enough infrastructure yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to hold all the vendors and all the attendees. Oh, um, crazy. So it's it's crazy. So does it take you, like hours to, to walk from one end to the, the other? Yeah, it's well, it's multiple halls actually. So, um, you know, for myself, there's, um, you know, who's in sort of production and I'm, I'm a cinematographer. I'm, I'm mainly checking out the hall that's devoted kind of to production. So that's kind of lighting and, and camera. Um, but there's a whole other section that's just audio. There's a whole other hall completely that's just post-production. If you're into post-production or anything to do in you know that realm, that's a whole separate hall. Um, there's a whole hall that I think that's just like like satellites and broadcast and that whole kind of realm. That yeah. When I was there, I didn't even go to walk in that hall. So I mean, I was, you know, the show is. I think the show floor is open for four days, and uh, yeah, you you could walk it. Um, from the the time that the doors open till they close each every each and every day, and you still wouldn't see everything. <laughs> um, it's it's overwhelming how and much. Stuff. I've always liked uh, in the coverage that I've seen. There's a great diversity in the the level of vendors. In that, like you've mm-hmm. got everybody from top tier Sony stuff to people who have just invented something in their garage and want you. To yeah, try ab- it. this ab- is follow focus. <laughs> you know, we made we machined it ourselves. Yeah. We've got four uh, working models. I, I sold my third child to finance this project. <laughs> um, yeah, it really uh, it is. You're right. There's a there's a wide gamut of of, of people making stuff, and I think it's an exciting time. Um, you know, I, I don't certainly can't speak to how the convention was you know 10 years ago or whatever but i think um with the boom of technology you see there's a lot of people making stuff and Mm -hmm. trying to solve problems that you know people like myself uh encounter every day uh, when we're shooting so it's great to know that there are inventors and entrepreneurs out there doing that and i love that there's a direct connection between the fan blogs and the development now like i loved i loved uh seeing the black magic booth because they were just they're basically showing the prototype that was derived exactly from the feedback that they got from their their previous two cameras. Yeah, as much as you can sort of uh, you know certainly gripe about certain things about the Blackmagic camera, you have to sort of applaud them 
in the fact that they've only been making cameras for three years yeah. and the fact that they've gotten this far in that short time span and have implemented the things that I think filmmakers are looking for it's 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 quite um, it's quite astounding and especially for the price points that they're at right yeah, like it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy it's crazy. They, just, it's they, crazy. Just, they just completely throw a bomb into the middle of the market they're like oh, I don't know it's a, it's a 4K raw camera. I don't know, three thousand dollars. Here you like, go. What? Yeah, it, it's it's pretty nuts, really. When you, if you think about, like, I came from you know shooting on, you know, mini DV. You know, I paid for my first mini DV camera. I paid about three three thousand dollars. So uh, to 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 think that you now you now can get a super thirty five size sensor shooting raw video for three thousand dollars is and that can be edited on your your Mac you know Pro yeah the codecs are pretty yeah pretty slim is pretty uh, astounding you know it's, it really is nuts I can't even wrap my head around the specs from when I first started because in two thousand four when I was going to purchase my first little starter camera to mm -hmm. learn um, photography. I remember the aspiration camera was like one of the one of the um, the Canon cameras that they were selling at B and H. Like an was, X L one or something. Yeah, like one of the XL right. cameras. Right, right, right. It was it was something like standard def. Right. Yeah, and uh, I think it was fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. The XL one delivered results that amazed both the director and the director of photography. One of the things I came to realize on this job is that you can actually buy an XL1 camera for the same cost as renting a 35mm film camera for one day. It's, it's funny you say that. Uh, I, w I sort of moved about two years ago and I was sort of clearing out a bunch of my crap as you do when you move, trying to, you know, reduce all the stuff you're going to move from point A to point B. And I found an old VizTech flyer. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't even know what you this is. You should totally post that on Facebook. I, I, I yeah, that. I've got some stuff on my Instagram, actually, that I, I posted. And uh, you could see, uh, you know, just looking at the prices of cameras, looking at the prices of, of memory, like the mm. price of like SD cards or compact compact flash cards, just astronomical. I can't yeah. e I can't even begin to quote what the prices were, but I just remember looking at it and having kind of a good chuckle, how far it had come along. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm thinking about buying um, a, an upgraded SD for my Blackmagic camera. Okay. And they're up to on B and H, you can get a 500 gigabyte SD card yeah that's 95 megabytes a second right right for yeah. under five hundred dollars yeah I'm sure I'm sure yeah it's it's like less than a gigabyte for um, per less than a dollar per gigabyte right okay um, for these tiny little cards yeah so you can imagine the capacity that they could fit into one of the the standard uh, mini solid-state drives right yeah, if you exactly. can fit 500 gigabytes into that little wedge yeah yeah that means the limit's like probably five terabytes if you're willing to pay for it. It's just a matter of finding the right price bracket that people will actually... Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, media has definitely come down, you know, considerably. And, uh, you know, and f you know, I think in a good way, you know, it, it's great. I mean, I still like to shoot sort of smaller media, like, which is actually becoming harder to find now. Like, mm -hmm. I... I try to shoot a lot of like you know 16 gig cards. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like to go more than 16 gigs because now with 32, 64, 128, 512, you know terabyte cards that I'm, I'm I don't know if they even exist, but I'm sure they're it's if it is no more than six months away. Yeah. Um, people have a tendency to shoot their entire day's worth of footage on one card, and that to me is scary. Danger zone. Very danger zone. <laughs> I would uh, you know I would 
definitely, I'd rather shoot a bunch of small cards and be offloading much more often, so. Yeah. But it's, it's becoming hard to find, like, you know, smaller cards, because everything's either, you know, doubled or tripled in, in capacity. And there's a trickle-down effect that happens for me, too, because whatever my high-end card was for my A camera, mm -hmm. as soon as I buy a new one, it, it trickles down to my, my B camera okay. or for my for my handheld like okay. so i'm walking around with my um a6000 okay sony camera yeah, and yeah. it's got like a 64 gigabyte card in it right, and right. I'm just, you can you can you never have to change it i'm just I i've know. been shooting for like three weeks just yeah. taking jpeg and raw stills with it it's that, i never <laughs> that's what i that's what i call my 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 dad syndrome that's something mm -hmm. like my dad would do he just you know you put a card in there and then like five years later he shot like five years worth of like family holiday photos and, and he hasn't downloaded anything <laughs> yeah and then i'm also finding with the heavy duty cards i can almost treat it like um a, a packet of film stock right, right in right. that um instead of offloading it into my computer and then editing it there i can just put it in a high speed usb3 drive mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. edit straight off of the card right and right. go straight to the, the final render like gotcha, without gotcha. ever having to dump it right so. yeah yeah, no, I mean, backup and storage is definitely sort of something that uh, is something that, you know, as I think as as that kind of desktop storage starts coming down, I think um, you're going to see um, a bigger surge in, in 4K video, you know, because I think that's sort of still sort of a big consideration when shooting 4K resolution is, is it takes up so much more data. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think drive space, uh, though, has certainly gotten uh, cheaper. I don't think it's not for every project gotten to a point where it's uh, viable for everything. Um, but I think as drive space does increase, I think you're going to start seeing more 4K, 4K acquisition. Yeah. You know, and that can be transformative and non-transformative in that if you don't know what you're doing with the camera, it'll still look like shit, even though you're shooting in 4K. Oh, no, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. It has to be in focus. You have to have it lit properly. Yeah. I know that um, the No Film School people are walking around with 4K Blackmagic cameras. You never know from the, the feed that's that's coming from the show. It, it all just looks like cell phone camera that could have shot them. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's always like, what is the end deliverable? And that's something I always ask my you know the producers and directors and clients that I'm working for. It's like, what, what are we... You know, 4K, I think, has become and still is a hot word. You know, people hear it and, uh, you know, much like HD was a couple of years ago uh, where everybody just wanted HD, HD this, HD that um, because that's what the buzzword was. And I think 4K has kind of fallen into that same sort of realm. Um, you know, there are some people using it um, for reframe tools and, and whatnot, um, and that's sort of interesting. But sometimes I think people just want to shoot 4K because they can where you really got to ask yourself what are you going to end up on if you're mm -hmm. going to end up on youtube or vimeo what's really the point it's super versatile um anybody who's who hasn't shot with it yet uh you can reframe much more easily mm -hmm. uh it's great for steadying footage because mm -hmm. you need a little bit of a bleed around your your frame in order Correct, to yeah. study steady video mm -hmm. um more simply uh, you can do cool tricks like pan and scan if you want to shift uh, the perspective mm -hmm. between uh, focal points mm -hmm. uh, in the shot. Mm -hmm. uh, you can add subtle zooms, like the perspective doesn't change, so you can't do anything dramatic with it, but mm -hmm. subtle zooms kind of work to keep the, the composition alive. For sure. Um, and it just it's, sh it's sharper. Like mm -hmm. as an acquisition, if you're finishing in HD, you'll end up with a lot of more detail on leaves and tree branches and, and all of that good stuff if mm -hmm, you acquire mm -hmm. in 4K. So for sure. it's kind of wicked that way. Yeah. Um, 
but there definitely is um, a fashion thing going on because it's already become boring. Like Red and and uh, and Ari and and all of the big companies have already said like, oh, 4K is passe. You know, you get that on a, on a, a Lumix GH4. We've already moved on to 8K. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Red. I mean, Red. That's Red's sort of uh, strategy in terms of their upgrade path. You know, they're eventually going to end up with 8K on their on their weapon. Uh, the camera that just they sort of just announced it uh, NAB. So um, yeah, it's it, you know, and Sony was developing some AK stuff as well. So you know, it, I think it's it's I don't know if it's going to be inevitable or I don't know how far down the pipeline we are or how close we are to 8K. Um, but you know, to sort of put it into perspective, a, f- a friend of mine asked me that the other day. He's like, <laughs> "Should I even consider buying a 4K camera? Because is how long is 4K even going to be around? You know, because is, is 8K coming? And you know, should I just sort of like save all my pennies uh, for a rainy rainy day, if you will?" Uh, What'd you say? Um, I mean, my my philosophy about equipment has always been: um, if you need it now, buy it now. Yeah. If you can wait. And wait, because you'll always get something better if you wait another Ge- yeah, six months. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, that that's that's the thing, right? You will you will always sort of probably get something better or or cheaper or smaller or faster or whatever it might be, um, for basically um, you know for the, uh, yeah at the same price or cheaper. So, um, but that being said, I think you can get trapped into a waiting game that you'll mm-hmm. be waiting forever. Where that's where I think the first part of my philosophy kicks in. If you can, if you need, if you need it now, it's something you can deploy now and sort of make use of. Then and then spend the money now. And you're a working direct, you're a working cinematographer. So from your point of view, it, there also must be like a um, a money making a point of view in it, right? Uh, where it's just like, yeah. can you start? Yeah, can you use this on jobs now and start? Right. I think. I mean, to to me, I've always avoided the camera um, game mm-hmm. personally. You know, there, there's certainly um, some of my contemporaries that have bought camera packages uh, and have spent a fair amount of money into camera packages uh, and have, you know, as far as I can tell, have made it work for them. Yeah. For all I know, they may be financially poor. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're living under a bridge at, at, under, the, under the crumbling <laughs> gardener. But uh, as far as I know, they've made it work for them. From, from my own perspective, it, it's something that I've, it's, uh, I've, I've never taken the risk on. I mean, these days... You have about twelve to maybe eighteen months on a camera body before mm-hmm. it's quote unquote obsolete. Right. You know, before the new kid on the block shows up. So, unless you can work a camera um, enough to make it back in that time span, which I think is very hard, mm-hmm. um, I don't really see how people are doing it. You know, I've always been of the mentality to spend the money in accessories right in lighting in you know monitors in filters and lenses and support you know um you're not going to see new developments in sandbag technology in the next two years (laughs) and the ironic thing is um going back to what i was saying about not knowing how to use the 4k camera properly right if you have all of those accessories and you've lit something properly and you've got a proper tripod that's keeping it steady. Sure. The shots are going to look better. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that philosophy. And I'd also, um, the thing that happens that's been happening to me for the last year or so is I find that like when my apprehension level goes up, you start to look for excuses 
before you can start. So you say like, oh, I'm going to shoot this short film, but before I do it, I need to wait until I get this camera and I got to wait until I get this follow focus and I got to wait until I get this, this new card that's coming out. And it can become a list of excuses where there's just all of this, this gear is preventing you or giving you an excuse not to start. And for so sure, sure. I think uh, for young directors, I would recommend just picking one and going for it because it's it's kind of not the most important part of of actually making stuff you can get a really good image out of the top four cameras that are available now like the gh4 is cool the a7s is cool the black magic cameras are cool no you're right it's, it's really it, it comes down to to nuance and and kind of personal taste and but i think when you're starting out you haven't developed um, a taste yet or, or, or a voice of what you like and I think the best thing to go out and do is to to shoot and um, you know maybe follow the rental game you know where you mm-hmm. can you're able to sort of try out different things um, or if you're lucky enough you know be in a position where um, you're working on jobs and with or with production companies that they're fronting the bill to yeah. rent the camera and you you sort of get to just be the guy to to try it out yeah, you know on, on, cool. on someone on someone else's dime mm-hmm. and so um yeah i think it's, it's important to go yeah, you're right just go out and make stuff and sort of get a sense of what cameras can do and, and start developing um uh, your own toolbox of what you like to use and what's good for certain situations and x and y and z and um and it, it develops your film literacy too right totally, you, totally. after a while of playing with the gear you start to be able to watch a movie and go like oh that's a slider shot oh that's a, a crane shot that's a jib if you want it to look like this you need to get a state cam and absolutely and and i mean you know and it's sort of been said and beaten to death but at the end of the day it really it comes down to story that's you know all this technology is wonderful and it i think has really democratized the process of of making films and making art or making content um but at the end of the day if if you don't have any story there or heart or or whatever it's 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 always going to fall flat you know eight a, a, a terrible story in in 8k is <laughs> transformers 8k is, is a terrible story you know <laughs> Yeah, um, Keanu Reeves did a Netflix documentary on the transition from film to digital. Yeah, side side. What is it? Side by side or something? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Did you watch it? I did. I did. Did you see the segment? You remember the segment with uh, with David Lynch, and uh, Keanu asks him, "Mr. Lynch, what do you think this is going to do to democratize cinema?" And David Lynch is like, "Well, you know, Keanu." There was has been uh, cheap access to pen and paper for a long time, but there hasn't been a lot of people that have been able to write as well as Shakespeare. Right, right, right. It's, it's like there's, there, it's all about story and ideas and stuff, and and the art behind it, and uh, the cheapness of the tools. I think the main thing that that's going to do is speed everything up. Mm-hmm. So people will be able to find if they have talent or not. Mm-hmm. much more quickly than they would in the old days. I think so. Yeah, you you know, you I think you know, I've certainly seen the explosion of that. You know, everybody you talk to, it seems like they themselves or, you know, their a close relative or friend is a filmmaker or mm-hmm. or something in the media field. You know, it really has boomed, um especially here in Toronto. You know, we really are a hub for that kind of um, you know, impl- you know, career uh choice and um you're right. I think there's there's a lot more people t- that come into the game and making stuff, and that's really great. But I think you also have a lot of crap to wade through now mm-hmm. um, to sort of see who who has talent and who doesn't. 
And it's one of those things too, where I think that it's, it's not going to roll back either. I think that what we're seeing now is um, a new form of vocabulary kind of emerging where people don't just express themselves um, in person in, in their regular voice or um, typing on a blog. Um, the new media tools are becoming part of the way we communicate with each other. So mm-hmm. if I wanted to wish you a happy birthday, back in the old days, I'd go to the variety store and buy you a Hallmark card. But nowadays, like everybody kind of has a basic understanding of After Effects and right. a little bit of knowledge of CGI. And they've got yeah. these cool tools on their phones that help allow them to do a little bit of motion tracking and stuff. It's all becoming part of the the literacy i think it's it's true you know you know and i think uh i think you're gonna see it more like i think we're you know i think you know you and i still come from a generation where we remember things before before that boom of of technology Mm -hmm. especially in, in, in computer technology um but you know my you know my cousin's kids who are you know from the ages of nine to 18 you know they they grew up in it and you're right they're just it's just embodied in them from, from, you know, or instilled in them from such a early age. And they just, they don't know a world where that doesn't, doesn't exist, but they're so smart about it too. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. Yeah. They, we acclimatize super, super fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's always funny too, because, uh, we always think that, you know, you can, you're going to, you're going to be the person in your family that's got the cool job, right? Right, right. It's like, oh, I've broken through. I've I've come from a line of of people like my mom works at Tim worked at Tim Hortons, and my my dad was a, a producer kind of banker guy. Right, and um, you you think that you're going to be coming to the family reunion, and you're going to be the one that's that everybody. Oh, isn't Jesse special? Does everybody want to watch his music video reel and stuff? But as soon as you achieve that, all of a sudden. Every, that that stuff isn't special anymore. It's right. like your cousin's also got a music <laughs> video, and uh, you know his is much more popular. He did he did a uh, a rendition of uh, Britney Spears song. He yeah. lip synced Britney Spears to his in his his iMac uh, camera, and he's got four hundred fifty thousand views in, in, in four days. Um, th- that's that's the other side of it too, right? Like um, I remember when we first started making things in like two thousand four. The internet was kind of a less popular place. You could go on YouTube and you would get like a lot of feedback from other people who were making videos and uh, you could, you had a chance of like getting on YouTube's like front page and getting a ton of traffic that way. And there was a lot of um, space and now YouTube is like boiling, right? There's, it's just like everybody's submitting content. They're getting like hundreds of gigabytes worth of data every minute. And uh, it's just a much more busy place to 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 get into, you know. Yeah, and I think actually, I think to me, actually, that's maybe the 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 most exciting thing about the evolution of technology is that um, distribution has essentially become free. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, you could go out and make stuff before and uh, and whatnot, but to actually get it seen on a mass scale. Um, you know that anyone in the world could see your stuff um, via YouTube or Vimeo. That in itself is is probably the the biggest leap that we've made in terms of um, content creation. And that's you know I think it's a super exciting time uh, to be making stuff um, because you're right. If as long as you don't set your own uh, limits, there there is no excuse. 
mm-hmm. to get out there and to make some stuff and to show it to the world and and sort of get noticed and have a voice in in as as much as there are many other voices to wade through um, to sort of be able to stake a claim to your own, you know. Yeah, especially when you're talking about um, if you're looking to be just an artist that's trying to make a cultural impact. Holy moly, is is it wide open? Mm-hmm. Because you think about something like um, the AFI top 100 films, mm-hmm. right? Um, of those top five, uh, the average person might not have ever seen The Godfather. Right. The average person might not have ever seen, I don't know, Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the next in the next five to ten years, there's going to be classic movies that are released for free on YouTube mm-hmm. because you can't help but there's a wide open gate there and someone is going to do something that goes massively viral in that kind of Gundam style type of way mm-hmm. where you've got multiple countries that are all watching this this thing, this piece of drama. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will will shift things because it is kind of cumbersome. We're still in that mindset that like movies are things proper movies are things that come out and they're in a theater mm-hmm. and you have to pay $15 and you got to go and you sit in the seats mm-hmm. and they turn down the lights and you get your popcorn. You know, it's, it's a very cumbersome kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a little old fashioned. I think mm-hmm. there, there's certainly, I, I would hate to see a day where that experience goes away. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's some, still something very wonderful about that experience. Um, maybe it's nostalgia talking, but you know, going to see um certainly certain types of films at a theater you know where you go and it's and it's it's kind of a it's a community affair you know mm-hmm. you get to sit with these people and and um strangers most of them and uh, but it should sort of share this experience you know this sort of visceral experience of watching something um as, as lights and, and things dance on the screen you know i think there's something really wonderful about that and i i, I would be sad i'd be sad if if, if one day that content creation is only digested through things like your cell phone and mm-hmm. Netflix and, and, you know, on your 95 inch HD screen on, you know, plastered on your wall, you know, as, as great as I think that is. And certain content is, um, is, is great to digest that way. You know, I think I, you know, going to the theater is still something really great. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely, it definitely helps your ADD too. Like I find that, um, when I'm watching stuff at home, you can't help but be distracted by other links and things that yeah. are on your second screen right. or right. Um, your cell phone might ring. Uh, you're kind of a captive audience. You, you're willingly captive. You go into and, like and it. Yeah, and, and it's an activity and it's an experience and it's something you go and do, you know, where, you know, watching something on Netflix is not, it's something you do to help you fall asleep, <laughs> you know, at the end of the night, um, for me anyway. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that sentiment. I got in trouble the other day because they leaked all the Game of Thrones episodes. Oh, yeah. First four from uh, the new series. Okay. And uh, I binge watched them with my friend Ilya. Yeah. Uh, And I I was thinking about the other day. That's like the worst way to watch television, even though it it, it feels so... um, It feels so good while you're doing it. You're just like, oh, there's another one. Let's watch it. You can't... A show with that kind of pace, you can't absorb that quickly. Right. You need like a few days to reflect on it okay. and anticipate. Yeah. And uh, yeah, digest it before you you jump into the next yeah, one. Yeah, I never really got in. The closest thing that I ever, you know, I, I'm still a stickler. You know, people, uh, I really like the old television model 
and uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll, 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 I've, there's a couple of people booing me out there right now. Or, you don't like uh, the commercials, though. I actually like the commercials. What? I, you know, I'm a very no. I'm, you know what? Uh, honestly, I'm a, I'm, you know, some of them are atrocious, obviously, but um, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a short format guy. You know, for you know, people listening out there, my my background has always sort of been in short format, and it's kind of what I find um, the most interesting, even in terms of from content creation standpoint and the storytelling standpoint. You know, I think what's happening in that thirty second to two and a half minute kind of realm. Uh, to me personally, in terms of my involvement, is much more interesting than um, two and a half hour features. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't get me wrong; I like I like watching films, but um, you know what? The stuff I like to get involved in um, is, is sort of short format, or it's like not that I've done a lot of it, but like web series. I, I'm I'm sort of or or television, I suppose. You know, I'm I'm interested in the 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 quirky, smart, clever. A visual kind of stories that can be done in 30 seconds to two and a half minutes or I'm interested in the continuing saga right you know that's what I've always been a I've always been a sequel guy more than I've been a prequel guy mm-hmm. I'm always interested more in what happens next mm-hmm. and I think you know long format episodic television does that yeah the golden um, age of TV yeah calling it now yeah Breaking bad and all that for sure you know um, so that two and a half hour window for me is uh, has never been as exciting as the, the the far extremes of either end of that mm-hmm. spectrum. Yeah, I get that. I mean, it, I've been finding the the movie length an awkward um, an awkward amount of time because I also uh, find that that forty minute episode length that you get for TV programs mm-hmm. that you watch online is the perfect amount of time between like work. Mm-hmm. and finishing your dinner yeah and then maybe you're gonna do more work at home or you're gonna go for a walk or you're right. gonna hang out with your girlfriend or something yeah. right um i've been trying you know i the last movie i watched was that new hobbit okay film and uh two and a half hours come on i i, can't, I don't got that kind of time peter <laughs> jackson come on wrap this thing up so i'm i'm really looking forward to the fan supercut of that thing yeah i'm pretty sure you can wedge that story down to uh what an hour and a half hour hour and 97 minutes or so yeah well maybe they'll do a they'll do a uh, this week in hobbit <laughs> mm-hmm. Do a weekly. Uh, well, weekly. you remember the animated se- uh, Hobbit movie from the seventies? Did you see that? I don't think I've seen that. No. If you check out the animated movie from the seventies, okay. it's all the same story. Okay, and it's an hour and twenty minutes. Right, right, right. and it's amazing. That's they great. should just shot for shot condense it. Yeah, redo it. that. Redo okay. that thing. Right, right. Take all of the clips from the new movies and sandwich it into that right. that format. It'll be great. Yeah, but yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I mean, going back to that, I mean, I like. Or turn it into a series. Yeah, I I think the on that that ongoing story element is is what sort of gets me excited, you know, um, about because I'm a, I, you know I'm a sucker for for characters and you know when you certainly get attached to a character you want to sort of keep keep seeing what's going on in their make believe lives uh, and that's what sort of series does and and I think you know I think that's why I think um, models like Netflix work. Because mm-hmm. you can sort of set the pace of how you want to ingest um, a character's ongoing adventures. Um, you know, I did, I did Breaking Bad sort of in that sort of way. You know, I, I've never really been a binge watching TV sort of guy. Um, not that I have a lot of time to watch television, um, but I, I did sort of find um, 
doing Breaking Bad that way sort of really interesting and uh, and I would do but I would even that being said I would try to limit the chunks that I would do it in as mm-hmm. as, as easily easily uh, done you know to be able to sort of sit there and and watch five seasons in a row for like I don't know lock yourself in your bedroom for six days straight it, that's scary and sad and <laughs> whatever other uh, that's know, a roller coaster ride watching breaking bad because I, the characters sure. are all falling in and out of yeah. favor with one another yeah 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 episode so, to episode so uh, but i i don't know i again i still like i still like the i like the the tune in weekly sort of kind of idea you know you go and you watch for an hour and you you, you see what goes on and then there's, there's maybe a bit of a cliffhanger and you gotta wait a week and I, something about that is is charming and interesting to me and maybe i'm just old-fashioned and have you uh have you followed any of the new new media stuff like do you watch any youtube based shows that are just like zero production value and it's just about the familiarity and the the personality of the person coming through um not really the one thing i have been watching on youtube um although i guess it's also via broadcast but i don't i don't have a cable or satellite but um um MLSC Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. They're um, they produce this actually fantastic uh, documentary series on the Raptors. Cool. Called Open Gym. Um, if you're a Raptors fan, definitely worth a check out. Um, so they 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 I think they they do broadcast them, and then I guess a couple of days later they release them on YouTube in their full sort of form. And uh, it's sort of an ongoing look at the Raptors and and their season and how the how the sort of you know behind the scenes sort of is unfolding and whatnot. And it's it's a really um, if you're a fan especially it's a really um, interesting look um, at what goes on in the makeup of that team and what's going on and their their trials and tribulations on the road and their families and you sort of it, it really puts a um, uh, it puts a face on sort of uh, these people that are otherwise just these sports athletes, right? You really yeah. get to see who they are as people. Um, and I, so I've been checking that out online pretty religiously uh, once a week whenever they release them. But it's such uh, a it's such a different format and a, a, such an interesting evolution of uh, of storytelling. I, I think that there was a lot of really critical um, words thrown towards the concept of reality TV, mm-hmm. but uh, in a lot of ways, I think it was it's ahead of its time. I mean, I think that there's certain things that you capture um, in the documentary format that Errol Morris uses, for instance. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, as more people have cameras and phones and things, I think that you're going to capture a lot of um, real intense moments that are going to give narrative drama a run for their money, right? Like, if you can if you can actually see a heart attack, if you can actually see um, a cop slaying, if you can actually see uh, September 11th from the point of view of the people who were actually there, why on earth would you watch uh, a $20 million Hollywood version of it? Sure. You know, but, but I think it also goes too far though. I think there are certain things that, you know, can be captured, you know, real, certainly horrific sort of things um, be it, yeah, you know, a, a murder or a plane crash or whatever it might be. And, uh, that personally, I, I just, I wouldn't want to see there's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's, there's no, in my opinion, there's no place for that kind of content as, as easily as accessible as it is to, to capture, you know, everyone's 
got an iPhone these days, and the, you know the, the what's a, what you're able to do with an iPhone um, is quite remarkable. Um, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say though is it, it's not so much about the kind of gratuitous um, celebrity that some of this stuff comes up with. Mm-hmm. I'm talking more about if you were um, a director and you were making Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's an activist angle to to something like that film mm-hmm. where you're trying to do a portrait of a neighborhood and you're trying to help people empathize with mm-hmm. the people who grow up in these circumstances right. and what i'm saying is that i think that the new digital tools that allow you to actually capture the neighborhood mm-hmm. it's a much more powerful piece of of footage when you actually see the real people it, it's not pr- playing pretend like right, there's something right, about right. the old school method where you get actors and it's like it's pretend time where right, you're gonna right. dress up and you're gonna play cuba gooding jr you're gonna pretend that you're from this neighborhood and you're gonna pretend that your friend got killed and this is supposed to make people empathize with with the inner city youth you know we can empathize with the inner city youth much more easily now because we have the real thing sure no i i agree i mean i i like you know i, I do a lot of sort of um documentary or documentary-esque type production working basically with real people and um that to me actually is is uh, always the most rewarding and the most interesting to me because everyone you're right everyone has a story and uh and to sort of tie it back into technology you know the you know cameras and uh and sensors now are so sensitive in terms of low light that you can really go in there um with a small footprint and sort of be uh, unobtrusive you know mm-hmm. i think that's the key thing you know in order to capture that stuff you have to have be a, sort of a, a ninja and, and not be sort of seen and not you know as, as i think as people as a, you know climatized as people have become towards cameras being pointed at them there are still situations where you can sort of spook somebody and mm-hmm. if you can sort of go in there and and not make a big deal of it and be able to capture that you're right i think there's something really powerful in that uh, in that process i'm looking forward to um a time where i can uh walk around the streets as easily as um some of the camera bloggers that i follow can walk around hong kong Mm. and nobody thinks anything of the camera um in ross's vale there's a lot of people that get really up in your face if they see that you have a camera oh really that's interesting they'll like cover their faces over and they'll say like hey what are you doing with that footage yeah you don't have a permit to be in this park this public place and she's like (laughs) i'm like i'm not even going to use it for anything i'm just testing the the lens out and oh that's interesting you didn't get a waiver i didn't sign no waiver so i guess i'm not coming to ronzi this uh this weekend (laughs) to hang out (laughs) um yeah no it's it's uh you're right it's there's there's the, the I find that, yeah, you're, there's a mixed sort of bag and you're never quite sure. And I think you always want to, how someone's going to react. So I think you always want to err on the side of caution. And I think we're certainly getting into that uh, into that realm now. You know, cameras are getting smaller and smaller and, you know, more light sensitive. Um, like the Sony A7S, is, it's a remarkable tool when you mm-hmm. think about it. You know, the camera is tiny. You know, it, it's basically a stills camera. I was shooting in New York um, late last year and... Uh, just trying to grab some b-roll of uh some buildings and uh and uh you know had the camera and and, uh the camera's got a really great optical sort of oled viewfinder um, for what it is and uh a security guard came up to me and like hey 
hey, what are you doing? You know, you can't you can't shoot video, but and I'm like, oh, oh, just shooting some stills, and he's like, okay, no problem. And what's the difference? To people, it's true. I guess I don't know. Is there some sort of uh, terrorist pamphlet that they handed out to all of the security guards? Or they're like, the terrorists need the video footage <laughs> in order to be able to make an attack. You're right. I, I don't really know. But, or uh, I, I bet you it's a lobby thing where there's like a filmmakers union lobby, and they said, "Don't let people take pictures of, of yeah, Union Station and, and, because and, we want the and, good yeah." Stock and, and, and I don't. There, you know, New York's. I think I don't know the ins and outs, but I know you know you can't sort of like put stuff on the sidewalk, and you know, it, but if you're I guess if you're a stills guy, you're exempt from certain rules. But but because you know the camera is so tiny, and it was um, you know so unassuming, I could just you know I could. The, actually, the only difference that I actually took was from using the LCD, <laughs> which I guess he thought was video, mm-hmm. to putting my eye to the the viewfinder, which I guess he thought was stills. Whoops. And I got and I got away with it. Um, and the camera was super, low, you know, super low light. I think I must have been shooting sixty four hundred ISO and was able to capture sort of the Manhattan skyline. I love those digital EVFs on on the little cameras now. They're getting better and better, you know, for sure. And and I think the Sony one is actually quite quite good and you know adds a, a, an extra point of contact and um, and yeah, you can you can kind of run around with a monopod and that and you know not even a crazy fast you know aperture lens and you can get away i think i shoot shooting with an f4 lens yeah and uh was able to capture i love the focus peaking just being able to to see the live view and um having that kind of intimate um, relationship with the camera and the lens and you know tripod it's it's all you need Um, did you see the announcement um uh the video blocks marketplace have you been following that at all no not at all what is that it's um it's a stock site okay and um, it kind of works like Netflix. It's like a monthly mm. subscription. You can have access to all of the stock you want to download. Okay. But what's cool about it is they've added um, a kind of Etsy-style marketplace where okay. you can sh- set up um, your own user account okay. and start posting um, clips that you shoot in wherever you're visiting. Oh, really? Okay. And it's um, the marketplace is set up so that 100% of the money... Um, that you get paid for the clip goes straight to the filmmaker. They don't take a cut of it. Oh, wow. So I think that they were saying that the rates were, um, for an HD clip, it was like $50 a download. Wow. And for 4K, it was like 199 Holy cow. So I was like... This, this is going to be very popular. I think that that's a, that's a great secondary income for for shooters. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've, I've heard stories of, of you know, older shooters when, I guess, when film was still around, they would take a Bolex and they would load it up with some film and they would go down to somewhere tropical um, when, when it's bloody cold here in Toronto and uh, would finance um, their holiday, essentially, by shooting a bunch of stuff while they were away and, and selling it um, to stock sites. Um, and uh, I've always thought about it, um, you know, doing it, but uh, there's certainly a saturation now because everybody has access to a 4K camera or whatever it might be. But um, that's great that you know companies like that are doing it. I'll have to look into it more. I don't, I don't know um, what the marketplace would be like. I imagine that there's going to be a ton of people taking photos of cherry blossoms and sunsets, yeah, and water <laughs> crashing on rocks. Um, <laughs> There might be a whole other kind of market for weirder stuff that only a person with like a point of view or a director with a point of view could come up with. Yeah, I think there. I I certainly think there are gaps in the market of stock. I don't, you know, know what those gaps are, but certainly I've I've you know worked with producers and editors, 
um, and, and in chatting with them, you know, they seem to share a sentiment that there's certain um, gaps in uh, even just standard stuff like vistas and skylines. You know, th- th- there might be a lot of it out there, but maybe 75% of it's no good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, speaking to these people and sort of getting picking their brain about what what is missing is it would be a great approach. Location specific. I mean, you know, how many people are going to have a decent piece of footage of like the Roncesvalles streetcar? I don't know. Right. <laughs> or, or really, how many people need a shot of the Roncesvalles streetcar? Yet. <laughs> Hyperlocal. That's the, that's the next trend, man. Right. Right. That's great. Cool. I, I saw um, a really cool documentary where um, they had a lot of uh, villagers out in Africa. Mm-hmm. And they had recently gotten an internet connection and some computers. And even though they have access to torrenting, like whatever the newest Marvel 4K movie is, mm-hmm. um, they were choosing to have film festivals in their own little theater mm. that featured the uh, the dramas that their local actors and their local uh, tribes uh, people had like put together. Right. Given the choice, like people always want to see, they prefer to see content that's about their own culture and their own um, place Na- where they live. Yeah, their own neighborhood. I guess that you can. There's an identification there. Um, yeah, with people you know. I mean, I think that's kind of that's kind of interesting. That's great. I mean, I think it, and I think that I think that kind of uh, activity just bolsters a uh, and, and and feeds a local uh, community of. of content creation which i think is, is always great did you um hear about the the prism prism awards uh, a no. couple of weeks ago no no no. it's like a music video okay. awards okay. ceremony that yeah. um some cats have set up in toronto oh nice um it was we got together uh, a few weeks ago and it was really cool to see like a hub a meeting place for the scene mm-hmm. um i don't frequent tiff uh, but I'm really glad that they had set this up, and I hope it becomes they, uh, a reoccurring thing that they do every year. Was it only music video, or was it, it was only music video? Oh, that's great. Um, a local, locally made, or was no, it? no. It's yeah. it's like the Canadian Music Video okay. Awards type okay. of deal. Right. Um, but it was just so neat to uh, see everybody together uh, in like a, a cocktail lounge kind of okay. area and yeah, just yeah. like shoot the shit. That's stuff. cool. I mean, that's, that's good. You know, I, I started actually off in music videos and sort of bigger budget music videos at the turn of the last decade. And, and that, that whole landscape has changed so dramatically. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually unbelievable, but um, you know, it's, it's a genre that I still, not that I do a lot of them anymore, but that I always find really interesting to sort of, um, work in and so it's good to know that uh, there are people still doing it here. what are some of the changes that you were observing well when I started I mean I started um, as a production coordinator probably in oh god that must have been 2000 and uh, 2001 maybe I started mm-hmm. and, I, and I sort of worked in um, um, in that realm for about three years in sort of the production side of things and uh, I mean the most obvious one is certainly money um, budgets have shrunk down tremendously. You know, Hilariously. I, yeah, I think when I started, I mean, even a, a fairly uh, unknown artist, you know, out of the, you, you know, I did a lot of like what they call like roadhouse jobs. So it'd be a lot of like American production companies sourcing a Canadian production company and shooting the video here mm-hmm. um, just for, you know, I, I guess money's sake, I guess because of the, the, the way the dollar was converting back then. 
Um, and, uh, you know, what I would think was still a fairly un- unknown artist from middle America, you know, you, they'd still be getting 120K to do a video. Yeah, right? totally. Which is crazy, 120K. Like now, you know, I don't know what uh, what much fact is giving out, probably 20, 25 or something. Sure, but that's good. And that's, that, you know, that's, that's a good budget for a music video because yeah. you'll if you're a working director, you'll get emails from people you thought were famous and they'll say, can you make a music video for $5,000? Sure, yeah, yeah. Can you, can you fly yourself <laughs> to the UK and shoot a music video for $5,000 right. and fly yourself back? Yeah. Uh, and you go, you're breaking my heart. You're killing independent Jesse. I know, I know. And, but, <laughs> and I think also because of, I think the, it's had a, it has had an impact on the, the visuals of what has gone, gone on in music videos. I think because you know, budgets have shrunk so tremendously, you can only afford now to shoot one day, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and uh, unless unless it really is a super you know, mom and pop kind of operation where, y- you know, you can sort of one man band it and if the band's available, shoot multiple days, but um, in any sort of crude out sort of more traditional way of, of doing them still, but on a smaller scale, you can only do one day. And I think textually that affects how music videos sort of feel and look because mm-hmm. it's you can only get so much done in a 12-hour day um and uh so it's you know it's become very like uh cliche and it's, it's yeah about, it's very like band performance some semblance of story of any back to band performance and, and it cuts back and forth and they're all kind of very cookie cutter in that approach mm-hmm. yeah and they have uh kind of similar lighting um there's definitely people who have figured out an industrial method for um making the music videos and i think it's a direct um it's it's one of the direct uh byproducts of having the shrinking budgets Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. because your output if you're if you're a working video producer your output needs to go to 25 or 30 videos a year in order to live comfortably mm-hmm. versus back in the old days when you could have done five to 10 right. and had them be a little bit more special, a little bit more organic, a little bit more um, unconventional. Right. Right. No, you're right. But I, I think, uh, so it's, it's definitely a different way to approach them now. And uh, I don't think it's ever going to go away. I think it's going to, you know, keep evolving and, uh, and uh, and, I, and I'd, it'd be, I'd be sad if they went away because I think it really is a great medium to sort of work in um, as a cinematographer, as a director, as an editor, because you know there's so uh, there's so little rules, if you will, about what you can do, and you sort of can do anything get, and get away with it mm-hmm. you, as long as you have a great track. You My know. feeling about it when I came out of um, art college was that it was the perfect medium to learn film too, right? Because you've got that wide open. Um, encouragement to experiment Mm -hmm. and then the other thing that's brilliant about it is you have an audience uh already right off the bat like if you're making short films like good luck getting people to see it right you basically need to um submit it to youtube or um put it into festivals and hope that someone gives you permission to screen it in front of a an audience um music videos tend to the band tend has tends to have a following and so somebody's going to see it it's not going to to be completely shouting in the in the darkness right shouting in the void what do you think of this uh these uh sort of new media approaches to to music videos like i think pharrell did a cool like 
video with Happy or whatever his track was last year and it was like was it twenty four hour music video or something like I that? always like reading the blog post about right these special videos, yeah. but I never end up watching them. Uh, okay. Like Bjork will, is always doing something with interactivity. Right. She's like, it, the, the new album is an iPad app. And I go, oh, that's really cool. And then I never follow up on it. <laughs> and I actually find it, um, you know, maybe I'm an old man, but I actually find it obnoxious when, when people do things like a 360 video where you have to move the camera around. And I, I feel uh, like I'm missing something too, because there's like content and stuff that's going on behind me. And I go like, Oh, the good part was behind me and I missed it. And they're like that. That's rewatchability. You're supposed to watch it again. And you're like, I don't want to do that. Show me, just edit all the good parts in and tell me where to look. See, I, I like that. I mean, um, I, I like that. I like this sort of like, um, um, mileage that you can get out of content by doing it that way. So you, you do get those rewatches and you can revisit it and sort of see the little gems that you didn't get to watch the first time. Um, and even from a, from a, you know, a creation standpoint, um, not that I've dabbled into that stuff yet, but, um, some friends of mine work over at the CFC and, you know, they're certainly developing that, some of that technology and Mm -hmm. working in that field. And I think it's, um, certainly as a cinematographer, something that I'm trying to sort of keep myself informed about because I, I think, as te- as that technology starts developing, um, you're gonna sort of s- start seeing it more and more, and just knowing and having a viewpoint of how to use that technology, I think is gonna be uh, key moving forward. Are you familiar with the David Cronenberg movie Existence? Uh, I'm not. No. In Existence, uh, he he, it's a sci-fi film about virtual reality. Okay. And in the premise, uh, the characters start to lose their bearings and get lost in this virtual world okay and um it's an organic video game that like plugs directly into your spine and communicates with your brain and we're seeing like the first stages of that kind of develop with oculus rift yeah um there's uh there's a technology too that i saw earlier in the day i went to a trade show and um there was it's one of those portal uh, technologies where you can just hold up your cell phone and it'll uh, projection map and uh, um, it'll projection map like a, a piece of video or a piece of graphic onto the thing that you're looking at. Okay. You know what I mean? It motion tracks the animation to stick to the frame as if it's 3d in part of, yeah. Okay. You can, cool. you can have it just like floating in space over Barry's shoulder okay. and it's motion tracked to the video so that, oh, I see, I see. as if you're, you know, like in a, in a, a wizard movie, like you're holding up the crystal ball to see like where okay. the demon is. Oh, cool. Um, but that technology is going to be really crazy when it's implemented into a proper film. Cause you can imagine a, a scenario where you make an Oculus Rift movie that is able to augment what you're seeing in your own apartment. So that instead of sitting down and watching a feature, um, you, the experience is that you explore your own apartment and right. find where the jump scares are and stuff. Like what's right. in the closet? Boom! Right, right, right. And you imagine like the the tragedies that are going to happen from that, where somebody accidentally like shoots their roommate or whatever because oh, they thought yeah. that they were boogie. <laughs> and then the the Congress overreactions from that we're like we gotta ban oculus and then the people fighting back oh, it's gonna be crazy you, you heard it you heard it here first <laughs> <laughs> but it's all it, it all uh, ties back to that existence like cronenberg was predicting that right what happens when you have augmented reality to the point where 
crazy people can use it as an excuse to do crazy, crazy stuff. Scary, man. Mm-hmm. It's scary. I, I'm going to have to sign a waiver, I guess, if I'm shooting this stuff. Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> uh, the world's going to get stranger and stranger, and uh, technology is only going to speed up that process, and we just have to relax and enjoy the ride. It's going to be a lot of nutty things that happen in the newspaper. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think it's like... But I'm interested to see sort of what sticks. You know, you look at, mm. um, you know, going back to NAB, you're looking, you know, a, a couple of years ago, the big thing was 3D, you know, and now you look at, you know, the the last two NAB shows and you hear nothing about 3D, uh, right? Yeah, I didn't it's, realize it, yeah, that. It's kinda, true. It kind of just disappeared, right? So um, it'd be interesting to sort of see, yeah, what, what actually does stick around and what's just flavor of the month you know and and uh and and it's gonna just be a, a, a fad even like i'm looking you know televisions like i'm look, i was looking to buy a, a 50 inch screen for my place and uh you know even about a year and a half ago everything seemed to be packaged with 3d glasses and it was a three, <laughs> 3d panel this 3d panel that and now i've been re-looking at uh what's out there now and there's nothing in 3d yeah and um so it was really just the flavor of the month that people just they just didn't think they needed it or there was, I mean, not no content to be fair, you know, to, right. that was, was out there to be enjoyed. So maybe that was part of it, but how do you feel about it? Do you, do you want to work in that, that medium? Do you find three it to, 3D? Um, or? I have in, from, it'd be interesting to try it for sure. You know, just to, to say I've done it and just to sort of think about, um, think about that extra axis and sort of think about, the way you frame things and stack things and the way focus is pulled and all these kind of things and convergence and all these things. Um, so Immersion I, too. Yeah. I mean, it'd be, it'd be kind of cool to try. Um, but no, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like my job kind of as a, as a cinematographer is to sort of create three dimensionality on a 2d plane yeah. through conventional methods like lighting and framing and stuff. And, that's what I enjoy doing. Did you see Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams? I haven't, no. He um, he designed it specifically for 3D acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, he goes and visits these uh, ancient caves in France where okay. all of the earliest drawings of uh, Paleolithic humans okay. are located. Yeah. So um, it's, it's those classic images of... of um, you know, European lions and uh, water buffaloes mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and all that. And they're uh, drawn in um, almost like a Picasso type of uh, line okay. on these, these cave walls. Okay. And he shot the 3D using like um, two HD cameras that were just on a broomstick. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my favorite cool. 3D films that I've seen, mostly because the acquisition really helps with the immersion. Mm you're dealing with um, images that have a kind of animation to them because they're drawn on undulating wall surfaces. Mm. And panning a 3D camera across that helps you understand what you're looking at and helps okay. you appreciate it. Right. It's like being there. I think that there's a lot of things like tourist videos, um, being able to understand sculpture. Like if you were to watch a Richard Serra documentary, mm -hmm. having a 3D camera pilot your way through his arcing walls of steel would be a much more vivid way of understanding the forms mm. than seeing it done in 2D, I think. So there definitely is 
I think that it, it just it just needs the it just needs its hero. It needs its its directing champion to to use it in the right way. Well, that's then, interesting because I've never I've never really experienced 3D in a factual based sort of scenario. Because um, I think in in with narrative, um, you know, in the in the films that I have sort of th- seen 3D narratively in in the theater, um, I find that you know after five or ten minutes, I forget the things even in 3D. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm more paying attention to again story and what's going on with the characters and the development of that story, and uh, and at that point, 3D is lost on me. They handle it in a funny way too. It's almost like a hybrid 3D because they use all of the classic cinematic techniques where there's depth of field, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where there shouldn't be. Right. The thing that's really great about the Herzog documentary is everything is in that like crispy HD video. Okay. And counterintuitively, that looks better to me for the 3D acquisition. Interesting. Because... Um, your eye is free to look around the composition and everything is in focus the way that your your eye would expect mm. a real place to look. I see. Whereas um, a lot of the modern 3D films, because um, they're tr- they have a legacy of like what a, a, a movie is supposed to look like, th- your eye is kind of like forced to focus on specific things in the composition and that kind of makes it dead. It doesn't feel as immersive, I think. Right, right, right. So just based on, right, just because of the way that the focus is sort of set Mm -hmm. in in the narrative sort of version. And I think that that's why, um, what might be contributing to that, that, because I get the same thing where you forget that it's 3D after a while. Right. I think it's because it's it's been approached as if it's a 2D movie. How did you experience, how did you experience this documentary? Um, like, they, I saw it in 3D at the TIFF Lightbox. Okay, right. So yeah, it's in a theater and the full thing. So right. if your if your television at home is capable of 3D, then I recommend right. um, checking it out because it's cool. Yeah, well, I kind of I kind of missed the boat on buying a 3D television now. <laughs> so uh, tough luck. The next the next thing is 4K. <laughs> yeah, is it is there a difference between the two? Like, is all are all 4K televisions capable of? of doing the 3d thing because it shouldn't it just be about being able to do interlacing in a high enough resolution that i mean i don't yeah i don't i don't know if i've work. seen a 4k 3d combo you know based on just on, on the immediate consumer market mm-hmm. um all the panels that i were looking at i was you know looking at that were 3d based were still hd screens and so um it, it seems to me that like everything is 3d has gone away and everything just now is straight 4k 2d televisions mm-hmm. um so i don't know <laughs> yeah i i was uh i was thinking about what you were saying about the the music video market and how it kind of uh disintegrated um in my time uh working from 2004 to 2012 ish mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um it seemed like every year things would shrink by about 20 percent and um i got to the point where i was um it was affecting my attitude with my clients and stuff right like i wasn't able to get the enthusiasm built up that i needed in order to do really good work right because it was just draining right like you know that a really cool band that you want to work with in toronto would be a great collaboration but it's just like oh you have no money nobody has any money. <laughs> what are we gonna do and uh you get into this the other tiring thing is you get into the cycle of applying for grants right and you'll have all of these really great bands that are like can you help us with a a video fact grant 
and you say sure but after like three years where you're doing like 10 or 15 of them a year it's very hard on your creativity to keep writing these these what you think is a you've you've imagined this video from start to finish you've you've put your soul into it and then the committee is just like rejected right, right rejected right. rejected <laughs> you go like is it because of the ideas because of the band like no, what's going I'm on sure, yeah i'm just demoralizing i mean i yeah i'm you know luckily i you know as a cinematographer i don't sort of find myself in that realm of of filling out uh, a lot of a lot of paperwork <laughs> but I, I i can i always you know i always sort of admire um directors and producers for their tenacity to um you know keep the good fight you know it's it because it it, 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 it is demoralizing i'm sure you know especially and, and everyone has to make a living and it's uh it's it's hard so the thing that i decided to do is um i got a day job and i work as a designer at a design studio and i've decided that the split is going to be i have my art and i have my things that i do for money yeah. And the things that I do for money are going to be stuff that I'm a fucking surgical badass at. And I can just fucking roll in there. No effort at all. Boom. You need Photoshop work done. Boom. You need this. You need some design work done. You need fucking 3D art. No problem. Crank that out. Nine to five. You know, put the money in the bank. Right. And then the things that I'm working on for artwork, it's going to be stuff that's coming from my fucking soul. And it's going to be stuff that I'm making for my friends. Yeah, and I think that that's so, that, that's a lesson that's that's uh, not easily learned by those just starting out. You know, everyone thinks that they can be sort of you know rich and maybe famous by doing things that they love all the time, 100 percent of the time, and it just doesn't it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And, and I saw too many of my friends from the scene like just go crazy. Yeah, because they the poverty just drove them nuts, and they started to get like a really cynical worldview about how the the art wasn't worth. It because they kept on the, the, trying see. to match the 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 art and the commerce made them not value the art anymore because sure. the world economy had convinced them that expression is only worth what you can get paid for it and it's just not true like there's all sorts of things if you talk to Ridley Scott his best movie is Blade Runner he made no money on it right because he needed to sign away all of the all of the benefits in order to make the movie that he wanted to. And I feel like that's the most important message to directors is like young directors, you know, don't try to, to find this like happy medium where you are making a good profit off of the thing you want to make. Just make the, figure out how to make the thing that is worth making for free and then you'll be on a much better trajectory, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's it's and it's it's and it's about balance you know it, re it really is you know everything you do in life um requires balance you know it, it, whether it be you know work life and your social life and uh you know what you do for money and what you do for love i mean nothing is uh nothing is is, is a perfect blend of that you, ha you have to go look for those mm -hmm. those different facets that will make up the rest of your life um so I, I think, yeah, you're right. And I think if, as, as soon as people get that, because I've seen it where like, you know, uh, friends of mine, they don't get it. And then all of a sudden they do. And you can see just their emotional state just completely changes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're in a much better place where they're, they're happy with what they're doing um, and, and putting food on their table. Yeah. Which, you know, as the thing that I the, the other thing that I came away with is like there needs to be more artists that are frank with with young people. 
and say like this uh, idea of like faking it till you make it is is bullshit like every single working celebrity is faced is on the same playing field as us and they're faced, faced with the same problems um, Francis Ford Coppola runs a, a winery in order to supplement his income. Right. Dan Aykroyd sells vodka. Um, Kanye West is so diversified. It's crazy. He's, right. he's designing shoes. He's, he's doing this. He's doing that. Um, they're running a record label now. Um, you can probably think of a bunch of examples off the top of your head. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, mu- being multifaceted, I think is, is important. And, you know, I spoke to some students um, a couple of weeks ago about, you know, who are just about to graduate film school. And I think it's on top of just sort of, um, you know, keeping yourself, um, um, you know, marketable on many different facets. I think it's really important to your own personal life to sort of be interested in different things and to sort of be culturally sort of Mm -hmm. rich, you know, not to sort of, uh, I, I see sort of a lot of young filmmakers just, um, just so um invested in film and 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 that's all they do and live and breathe and, and there's i mean you know there's some benefits to that especially when you're younger and you're you're hustling and it is a hustle kind of game um but i i just think it's kind of sad um when you get lost in that mm-hmm. you know and, and you don't you know you don't have time to be sort of i think i think there's sort of a, a negative connotation that you can't be interested in anything else yeah you know, which I think is, that's, that's me scary and sad. You know, I, I think if you can maintain other interests outside of film, um, the, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, because you can get into that trap where if you are deriving all of your creative ideas from watching other people's movies, you know, you're going to get out ideas that are, ver- are derived from that stuff that you've seen other people doing. Mm-hmm. Um, Werner Herzog runs an online film school mm-hmm. and it has almost no... Um, film literacy component to it. Mm-hmm. He has all of his students read novels. Right. He's like everything that you need to know about filmmaking can be derived from reading novels. And he's got this great um, kickoff advice for anybody who's apprehensive about starting their first feature, where he just says, um, "You got to go out and get the worst job possible that will pay you the most amount of money." So get a job he's like get a job in an insane asylum get a job is is a is a arctic fisherman of crabs just get any job that will pay you well and will make you work hard and make you experience a, a slice of life that you wouldn't normally get right absolutely if you're if you're putting yourself in a position where you're a bodyguard at um a, a strip club you know four nights a week you are going to see some life and you're going to come away from that experience with some things that might be worth making a movie about. Yeah, I think it's about it's about I think perspective. I think is the is the sort of word there. You know, just to sort of go out there and and live your life and and have different interests and ex- and, and and experiences mm-hmm. uh, and be able to come back, to, you know, to to whatever medium you choose to work in and and have a perspective of what you, what you want to say. I had um, a conversation with um, Winston Hacking about uh, Matt Johnson's uh, The Dirties. Did you see The Dirties? Uh, I have not. It's a, it's a cool film. Um, Matt Johnson was uh, doing shorts called uh, Nirvana the Band the Show, okay. which are uh, pretty hilarious online shorts mm-hmm. that he just kind of made with his three friends. Yeah. And um, The Dirties was kind of um, an extension of that 
early warm-up stuff mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. It has um, comedic elements all the way for the, through the first half. The movie is about a, a school shooting, um, and you follow the main character as um, they move from being like an amateur filmmaker trying to do Tarantino ripoffs mm-hmm. with like fake guns and stuff mm-hmm. to um, getting bullied mercilessly in high school and finally like organizing like a, a shootout camp in our school shooting at the end. And so it's kind of an intense, like psychological drama. And, um, the weird thing about it is that there's never been anybody that's kind of made that material from the point of view of the shooters, Hmm. you know, you're right. They're Um, They're always sort of painted as the, as the, the bad guys if you yeah and uh the thing that was also like very liberating about it was it was a call to arms to anybody who has been putting off making a feature because of technical things mm. the movie is shot on just like dv footage with wireless mics mm. and no lighting available light mm-hmm. um it, they had a very casual way of structuring the script where they would just improvise for hours and hours and hours because the acquisition tools, right? Like the, G, the GH4, you can shoot for six hours on a card and then just take the very best bits afterwards, right? It, it, it's kind of um, a really quick and uh, loose way of making films. Um, so watching that was, was, was very liberating to anybody who's been stalling for lack of gear. Um, and I talked to Winston about it and, um, I, I had, um, just finished like my own kind of feature screenplay that I was interested in getting feedback as to, you know, you know, is this any good? Should I raise money and make it? And, um, the thing that I ended up doing was, um, if you read, uh, Soma, the, the script that I made, um, it's very, it has all of the hallmarks of a, a kind of like a Sundance first indie feature. Okay. And I didn't even realize, right? Like I started going through the list of of things that were screening at Sundance. And they're all this kind of, they're always these quirky movies about um, weird artists that don't really have jobs. And they're in scenarios (laughs) where they kind of go on on adventure. They kind of hang out with their friends and they talk about like the nature of the universe and stuff. And this quasi philosophical type of way. And, um, starring Zach Braff and Natalie Portman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well it would be even more indie than that, right? right. Like usually it's like non-actors and right, stuff that right. are involved in these things. And those are really cool. But the thing that the dirties did was that it kind of, it, it made it, it was a hyper personal kind of movie. It was, it was a, a thing that was set in Toronto with Toronto people the director's in is is the lead person, and there's a point of view and a voice that's coming through it in a very strong way. And um, what Winston was saying was uh, that that's that's the that's the real cinema. That's what sh- we should all be striving for is is try to find what that inner voice is, and try to find what your your point of view is about the world, and capture that. I found that like a lot of my colleagues and stuff, when we're bullshitting about um, future projects you can get into this cycle where you're making stuff that's not really saying anything about you. You know, these are, these are um, exercises in art direction where you've taken two kind of quasi weird or, or things that you haven't seen before. And you're combining them together into this, this new art direction that you haven't seen. And um, you're going to put some sound, layer some sound effects on it. And the end result is going to be kind of this strange, 
I don't know what kind of thing. You know, this this psychedelic headspace where it's not quite funny, it's not quite scary, it's not quite, it's just weird, you know. And the thing that that uh, never happens that I find when I'm being honest and telling a story from the heart about something that I've actually observed or that I've actually done is that it never feels that way. Hmm. Like when I tell a story about my childhood or something that I've done, right. it's either funny or it's dark or it's insightful or it's something, right? right There's right. A, an emotional core to a lot of our memories that the stuff that we just write and pull from the air don't have right, right. a lot of the time. For sure. And so his challenge to me was to, you know, go back and figure out a way to like make a movie that feels like talking to me. And so that's where the podcast came from. I was like, okay, well, how do I find out what that voice sounds like? It's it's like you got to go back and and just start getting to the base of it. Like, and, I, and I think that's that's what you you know I think you hit it on the head there. I think it, it's it's a process. It's something that um, you don't you will never know what your voice is right away. And it takes um, a lot of time and a lot of stumbling, a lot of mistakes to sort of figure out what that voice is. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been sort of shooting now for, for, ten, for probably over 10 years now. Um, but it's only sort of in the last, you know, very short while that I've, that I, I've seen sort of the evolution of, of, of my career. And, and, and I'm, I think now entering sort of the next phase of, things that I'm sort of interested in and, and knowing what I want to, what I want to do and, and the realm I want to work in and what I want to say in that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it takes a lot of time and I think you're right. It's like you, you sort of have to sort of figure out what it is you want to say. And then going back to, you know, the equipment end of it, um, certainly as a cinematographer talking to directors, um, sort of figuring out w- what is the best way to, sort of tell that story the most authentically and not sort of um, uh, impede on the on the process. You know, like when mm. you said that these guys shot this thing, I haven't seen it, but they've shot it on DV cameras and they just could run, run continuously. You know, I'm sure if that production had been shot on red mm-hmm. where you're reloading and there's a guy pulling focus for you and you need more lights and all this kind of stuff to, to make it work... I'm sure that movie would have been vastly different. Yeah. You know? That was a that was a great a spontaneous moment that we caught there, but did we catch the light right? Can we can we do it a few more times to get the lens flare so it just like crosses his chest at the right time? Right. <laughs> you know, and that's a different and, and and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a different that's a whole different process and uh, I I think it, you know, it, it that's always the challenge like looking at a, at a story and looking at a scenario and sort of trying to find a way to um uh, make it work the best for you. I mean, I, I, I remember Shane Hurlbut said that he was he recently, he said, um, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but that his job as, a, and he's a cinematographer, if mm-hmm. no one is familiar with him. Um, you know, his job, once the, once the train has to leave the station, it's his job to let the train leave. Hmm. You know, and so as a cinematographer, you, and that always really stuck with me, you know, my job is to sort of try to help the director the best that I can um, in serving the story and, and doing what it is I have to do in my job description, if you will. But when that train has to leave, I have to sort of let it go. Yeah. And that's the, that's definitely uh, the responsible thing too, because you can imagine the opposite of that where like the, the, the cinematographer is almost, um, 
calling cut and stuff because of the technical limitations or whatever. I yeah, can like imagine those those giant IMAX cameras. It's almost like it's such an industrial thing that the person operating that has got to have a lot of power over the shoot. Absolutely, but in, in, in these little things, it's like you know, by all means, you always try. You know, you know, I'm a detail oriented person, and so you know, whether the if the backlight is you know ten degrees that way or ten degrees this way, I notice these things, but. At the end of the day, um, um, it, it, it means me taking another twenty minutes to fix that, and the, you know the directors and the actors get twenty minutes less to sort of do their thing. You know, how is that really helping the overall execution of of a story? You know, so and it it helps me sleep at night too. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Knowing that uh, you you do what you can, and but. And then it's, you know, it's, it's, you got to let it go. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a, that's an awesome, like kind of a team player, um, philosophy attitude type of, type of thing. Yeah. Um, Roger Deakins was, was saying something very similar. He has this, um, interview on 30 DP. Have you ever seen that YouTube channel? Yep. Um, and he's kind of hanging out in his backyard and he's talking about, you know, life and working and things. And um, he's he's just a really great guy to to just listen to for two hours because he's got such a humble kind of working class spirit, like no ego. Um, he he was asked about like his gear and, and things, and he he was laughing and saying that uh, a lot of times when he's hired for gigs, um, people expect that there's going to be these giant tractor trailers that pull up or right. he's going to land in a helicopter and there's it's going to be all dramatic and he'll show up with like a three-piece lighting kit and right. just his camera and stuff and and he'll say you know it, it's it's really he tries every year to make things as simpler and try to do it with less gear and try to do it with less um yak industrial yeah. kind of things right he wants uh, exactly what you're describing, where um, the director and the actors and those those moments. Mm-hmm. He wants them to be able to breathe and not suffocate everything. In, yeah, and you want to, and yeah, you kind of want to remove as as much of the mechanics, I think, of, of filmmaking as you can, and so you know that uh, that the actors are feel comfortable in 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 being able to sort of do what they need to do. Um, to, to tell the story, you know, and, and for the director to have a space to sort of feel comfortable to, 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 to make the movie. Right. Um, and so it, it's something, it's something that I think every cinematographer sort of struggles with, um, especially as they, I think young, young cinematographers who are, are, are very uh, precious about what they're doing and, and rightfully sh- you should be. And, and you don't, you know, you don't want to be, I'm not, advocating being sloppy or, no, or no. whatever it is but uh, yeah that i think that that train metaphor is, is is oh i think the the best way to sort of sort of see it i i also like the idea of somebody at deacon's um caliber um advocating uh small gear shoots just because there can be an insecurity about the equipment sometimes i remember i was watching a a review for um the new sony mirrorless cameras right and um the photographer was saying um he was showing his like 1d body you know this big brick of a canon camera right and uh he was showing like his massive like telephoto lens and stuff on it he's holding it he's like i bring them both to photography shoots because the client wants to see this one they want to see that they hired a direct or a, a 
they hired a photographer that's like legit quote-unquote legit right. he's like but i actually use the, the pictures from this one well it, yeah it's funny it, it, that's always been uh, that's kind of a thing that you sort of come across um, or i've come across in the past so you know like matte box envy Mm-hmm. You know, you show up on set, and and uh, and the producer might be like, "Hey, can you can you can you put a matte box in the front of the lens?" <laughs> I'm like, "I'm not using I'm not using any filters, man. Like, what's the point?" He's like, "No, no, no. It just it it looks good to the client. Yeah. It looks like that. We you know they're they're spending their money wisely." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, sure." And, and you it, think of the technicians. We've we've gone to the trouble of of designing this beautiful camera that's that's small and light and yeah. versatile. Yeah. And then people they get envious and they want to build this giant frankenstein rig but the, but the funny thing is that it, it 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 does it does have sort of a, a, a an impact on on you know a visual impact on on how how you're perceived i think mm-hmm. I, I i think it's ludicrous and crazy but uh it, it, you know pe- people are humans are humans and when they see something big and shiny and yeah and, and they they think it's better yeah and it's a it's a, an added layer of show business you're going to put on a little show to the person yeah, who's who's putting that signing the checks yeah definitely definitely a dog dog and pony show some of these things but uh <laughs> it is it is funny it is funny oh man yeah. so uh what have what have you been doing lately like um where, where's your headspace at when it comes to to making stuff are are you um are you finding that that tricky life work balance and like is there hero projects that yeah, you're, you're looking I mean, forward to? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's funny you say work life balance. That's actually sort of a phrase that I've been sort of thinking about a lot recently. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I mean, my my work life balance is is actually quite healthy. You nice. know, I, it it really is. I I work I work really hard when I need to work, and but I I also have a lot of time to myself and, and decompression time between jobs. Um, uh, you know, recently talking about sort of, you know, shooting for 10 years and, and sort of, I think coming now to the next chapter of my career, you know, that they say it it always takes about 10 years to get to the next step. And so Mm -hmm. I've, I've sort of put my 10 years in now and, uh, and mentally I'm sort of in a new headspace of sort of what, then you know trying to sort of foresee and maybe mold what the next 10 years will be and sort of set myself up to sort of do that um so interestingly enough food shooting is sort of um kind of where my headspace is a lot these mm-hmm. days um i've always been a uh, a bit of a foodie and some someone has always really enjoyed cooking and uh have has and i've always loved the culture that has come along with that and i think food is a really great vehicle it's something that's so common among everyone um and it's something you can you know sort of share share with and have a discussion with with almost anybody everybody has a favorite food or a favorite restaurant or a favorite dish and um it's something that you can it's, it's kind of a conversation starter with with anyone you sort of come across um and uh and from a shooting standpoint i, I just sort of really love the, the process of of um of doing it um i think it's sort of the the finesse and the detail orientation um, oriented sort of uh, process that that sort of brings, um, which I really enjoy. There was some really beautiful shots in uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you check that out? I, I did. Yeah, really stunning. Really, really great stuff. And so I really enjoy you know working sort of in the tabletop sort of realm and 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 getting to to work with food stylists and and so sort of sort of bring a certain finesse to. To, to food and, and, and what it can represent. Um, and so that's sort of, yeah, it, it kind of where my head is and what I'm trying to pursue. And it's kind of funny how the, 
the universe sort of works. You know, it's something that uh, I was thinking about. And, and sure enough, um, a bunch of uh, jobs and campaigns sort of came about in the last two years that has sort of um, been able to foster that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting trying to project. Um, I think that we've, we've gotten full into project land. Yeah. The idea of career is like so strange to me now. Mm. And the idea that, you know, you talk to people who are planning five years out and you're like, five years? Yeah. What do you mean? 2020? <laughs> That's an impossibly long time away. How can you possibly anticipate where you'll, the world and your life will be in, in I mean, 2020? I, I, I think there's certainly a benefit to 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 thinking about it. I, I mean, I certainly agree with you in that, yeah, it, 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 the, the world is, is moving at such and evolving at such an unpredictable pace that yeah you, you, who knows i don't even know what i'm doing a month from now really mm-hmm. so i certainly subscribe to that that idea that how yeah how the hell are you ever going to know what you're doing five or ten years from now but i don't know i i think this but i think there's something sort of um interesting and worthwhile in you know thinking about the trajectory mm-hmm. of where you're gonna go um and and having maybe some game plan, I'll bet it might be super loose of how you're going to get there. A lot of my friends in the art scene have become much more global. It's mm. become very common for people to um, form a circuit where they're in yeah. London for a while. Yeah. They went to New York, then right. they went to Tokyo, right. then the Middle East. Yeah. Right, right. And I was right. thinking it would be incredible if there was kind of a derivative of um, Airbnb where we could all do studio share. Because you naturally find that if you visit a lot of people's um, home office type of things that are in the creative areas, they have a lot of cool shared overlaps. Like they have neat books. Right, right. And they have a little little work area with their computer and stuff like that. It'd be rad if there was a social network where you knew that you were going to Beijing and I knew that I was going to go to Beijing after that and we could like swap houses right and we could have like a whole little network where we're all paying the same rent but we 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 juggle which places that we're staying in i'm sure that must i'm sure that must exist no i I think it's i think it's amazing yeah i was reading um the l ron hubbard uh book the going clear okay yep and the the interesting aspect about those like charismatic cult leaders is that on paper they don't have any money but they live as though they're aristocratic, super wealthy, because people just are giving them favors all the time. Right, like, right. They're just devoted to your church. So it's like, oh, you know, uh, L. Ron Hubbard needs a, a private jet to fly to California? Oh, borrow mine. Just bring it back with half a take of gas. Um, <laughs> well, that's e- easier said than done these days. <laughs> so I feel like the art scene could totally have that kind of swagger where, you know, you got colleagues that you can couch surf in. Right such and such a place uh, set it up yeah i mean that beca- i mean i mean kind of great to just you know to and, and i think just again talking about sort of like culturally sort of expanding your your perspective i think that that would certainly foster that um and uh and nurture that you know and in terms of putting my money where my mouth is if i have any uh far-flung friends that are listening to this and need to come to toronto you can sleep on my floor it's cool <laughs> i got yoga mats we'll work it out sweet uh sweet sweet panel <laughs> <laughs> i got some uh cold you know the house is warm you won't you won't freeze to death yeah yeah that's great <laughs> so what did you, was anything sort of specific at nab that you saw this year that you sort of really uh really i was i was jazzed about that um that stock site 
Yeah. Um, I dug all of the innovations that um, Black Magic mm-hmm. has uh, come up with. I mm-hmm. like that um, they've made the cameras even smaller yeah. um, than before. I think that they've opened up a whole new creative niche for themselves that doesn't really exist. There's a lot of people that are doing things with GoPros that are interesting, but the image from GoPro is kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it it is what it is. Yeah. It's gone gone a lot better, but Mm -hmm. it's still certainly as a cinematographer, for me, it's, it's, it's never been quite there, certainly in terms of its manual control of, of exposures is a big one. Um, and so to, yeah, to see a camera like Blackmagic, um, you know, building something so small with a, with a micro four thirds mount that I can put a lens on there and not, you know, commit myself to a, a something super wide angle mm-hmm. is great. And just little things where people were just saying, oh, shame about the rolling shutter. Oh, shame about the no slow motion. They're like, oh, we can fix that. And we'll also make the, the, the alloy body nicer and we'll make it more ergonomic so you can reach the buttons. Right, right. You're seeing a company that's like a work in progress and it's a collaboration between the people who are fans of it uh, and their, their technicians. And what I dig about it is that the price point is low enough that like I might buy one just to support the company, just to say like, I agree with what you're doing. You right. deserve to be rewarded and have people support your stuff because Canon is very arrogant and we need to shake this this business up a bit what are you shooting on these days mainly um i bought uh, a gh4 and um a black magic pocket okay um that i've been working with and right, then right. i also have a a6000 that i use as my like kind of walk around camera gotcha gotcha and i got um speed boosters for all three cool and then i've been um uh playing with i have a set of can, um nikon um vintage nikon glass F that lenses or whatever. With, right right mm-hmm, the yeah. manual focus stuff cool so um yeah i've been playing with that i'm trying to decide like what route to go in because i don't want to end up being like a collector where i've got like a pile of of gear uh waist high oh yeah i'm i that's guilty as charged mm-hmm. <laughs> even though it's really fun to kind of I, I have like precious moments where i i like i stroke them and <laughs> I, I polish i polish the stuff uh but i i'm i'm wary that that will become like a um an excuse to that'll stop me from doing things so i'm getting to know the cameras really intimately and eventually I'll sell off the other two and just focus on the one suite. Mm-hmm. I haven't decided quite w- which I like better, the dynamic range that I get from shooting raw or the 4K. Right, right. I, I really like the being able to punch in and the lack of moray that you right. get from the 4K acquisition. But there's something romantic about that that raw image, that fuzzy mm-hmm. raw image that you get from the black managed cameras right. just has a it kind of sings a bit. Yeah, it does. I mean I mean I think it's you know I almost would encourage you to to, to sort of not make a decision. Because mm-hmm. I think, you know, as I you know, as I sort of scour the blogs and sort of think about, you know, the the process in the work that I'm doing, you know, it really is um socially acceptable now i guess to be camera agnostic you mm-hmm. know it, it, that there there is there's never going to be one tool that's going to serve all purposes for all jobs forever yeah. um and so you i think you just having an arsenal uh, of tools to pick and choose from um is is really great the thing that's happening to me though is that 
I worked with like a Canon Rebel camera for a really long time. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a very limited starter kind of thing. And most of the time I was shooting with like a kit lens and stuff and I never even thought about it because it was just a naive uh point in my like learning. Right. And for a proper jobs, you know, um cinematographers like you would come in with um, uh, you know, proper like Canon zooms and like 70 and, mm -hmm. and full frame sensors and things. And, mm -hmm. um, you would, you would see the, that that made a difference, but there's something I, I really benefit as a, as a, as a creative person from limitations. Mm. And I can find that, um, and if I don't, if I don't pick a stream, I'm not going to be able to get the most out of that kind of that image right you almost want to specialize if you yeah will. right because i'm i'm not i'm i'm worried about um i'm not trying to look at trying to find a perfect um trying to cover bases with like image acquisition mm. it's more like if i have a story that's about a friend of mine um and uh we want to do a mini documentary about the neighborhood that we grew up in mm-hmm What's going to be the feel of that thing? I want to find a camera that I can use as my paintbrush. You know, it, it's not so much about being able to have limitless image acquisition where I know that if I could, if I shoot in the middle of the night or if I, you know, blank, 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 it's about allowing my shots to be dictated by the brush that I've chosen is, is more the, the way I want to think. Mm, interesting. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, uh, interesting perspective for sure. Um, and I've always, up until now, um, I've always tried to make the digital tools have that kind of 70s cinema feel to them. I like fuzziness. I like grain. Mm -hmm. And so why not just pick the one that gives you that for free, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I, again, going, yeah, going back to personal taste. Like, I'm, I've always been sort of a, a Canon guy. I, I sort of like, you know, what they're doing, well, you know, the way that they deal with color and, and, you know, and I can certainly maybe get into it from a, technically speaking, but at the end of the day, what I always think about in terms of Canon's look is how it feels to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I shot, um, I shot some food stuff last year. Um, a friend of mine, we sort of just, uh, who's a chef, we sort of just got together and, and just did a little sort of thing with him and two cameras and, and whatnot. And just to sort of, uh, to, just to sort of make something really, and uh and i remember finishing it and being like this feels right mm -hmm. you know looking at the images and looking at the way it moved and intercut with you know two cameras and i'm like this this just feels really good and feels uh, and I'm, I'm excited about the image you know and um and so that's why i, I continue to sort of use canon product you know because i really like the way that their image feels in, in what I'm doing. Are you excited about the C100 upgrades? Uh, yeah, I, I own an original C100, um, and uh, which I got uh, 18 months ago. Going back to that whole 12, 12 to 18 month uh, time <laughs> window that you have to, to exercise in order to sort of get the most out of a camera body. Um, and sure enough, they they dropped the Mark II, uh, which I am super excited about. I am. I've been looking for, looking at getting a, a two camera sort of package. You know, a lot of stuff I do is like interviews, and to have an A and a B um, that match really well is is something that I've been looking at. And even just from a, uh, a conversion standpoint, like I, I I do a lot of stuff that's like kind of a bit run and gun, and uh, to be able to have a sort of body that's pre-configured for 
sort of studio handheld and another one that's pre-configured for jib and movie world you know yeah, that, totally. that, that's kind of it, just to be quicker about it is really great um but yeah the mark ii upgrades are are really exciting it's it's Really, that's the camera that it should have been in, in its first iteration. Run down some of the specs that uh, you're interested in. Uh, well, the Mark II adds uh, adds 60p slow mo, which mm. is really nice. Um, last summer, I, I I shot some stuff for Virgin Mobile, and was running around sort of the the concert series all across to, uh, Canada, and uh, and we really wanted to just de- deploy some slow mo in that. Um, but the camera, the, the Mark One, doesn't have any slow mo capabilities, and so I found myself using um, uh, um, the, the C100 Mark One for all my daylight sort of exteriors and low light night inter- night ex- exteriors. Um, but for anything slow mo, I had to go to like a, a Sony FS700 or 100, which. If anyone out there has worked with that camera, it's an ergonomic nightmare, <laughs> just a disaster. Um, and we we made it work, but I just what are the some of the, what are the some of the things that make it an ergonomic nightmare? Is this too many buttons? Or? Um, it's it's uh, I mean, I mean, I suppose many cameras are are of this description these days, but it's a it's a it's a box with a sensor on it, you mm-hmm. know. But the the built-in screen is this like rinky-dink thing that's at the very back of the camera that has no level of articulation and there's no sort of comfortable way to hold the camera and pull focus and sort of do what you have to do uh. and and you could get a shoulder rig system and all that kind of crap for it but we were traveling you know across Canada on and off planes and um, just didn't want to sort of complicate things you know I, I, I really like the idea and I think we're getting there with the sort of camera design is that you know it's out of the box ready you know, right. I can put a lens on the front of it. I can put a memory card in the back, put a battery on there, and it's ready to shoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I can run around with it all day without any all this extra gack on it. And uh, the C100, I think, is not perfect, but it's certainly closer to that description than the FS100 700 series cameras are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so adding 60p to, you know... Um, the C100 I think is great if that sort of situation comes around again knowing that I can travel with one camera and run around all day with one camera um, not having to sort of flop bodies um, is cool I've been uh, I've been feeling that way about external monitors like right. I, I think that the the Q7 is a really cool um, addition and I especially when you're when they're talking about um, when you pair it with the the C, the new C100 you can do like 4K raw through it. Did you did you see that? Not not obviously 100 though. Mm-hmm. No, you not through that. It doesn't output 4K. It's the the new C100. When you pair it with the new Q7, you can record. You can what? capture 4K raw with you, with the new. You're not thinking about the C300. No. Um. Oh, okay. Which is the top one? 300. Okay. The 300. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I have it backwards. Okay. I thought the C100 was the 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 flagship one no no that's the that's the the baby brother mm, but, okay uh, so the c300 when you pair it with the um the q7 right. you can capture 4k raw 4k raw yeah you're um, right. but up to 30 frames as you put it you end up um increasing your gack level right you have yeah a camera that starts to have all of these antlers hanging off of yeah, it. yeah and that's you know it the and I, and I find with uh, with monitors recently, although this year at NAB it seems to have changed the other direction, but uh, monitor onboard 
quote unquote onboard monitors have have been getting bigger and bigger the last couple of years. You know, the more common size to find has been seven and nine inches respectively, and which to me is way too big for an onboard monitor. Mm-hmm. Way too big. I'm so surprised that a company hasn't just ha- uh, made a product that is just the onboard EVF, the small eye scope. Mm-hmm. And made it like a Bluetooth type of, type of thing where you just wear it on your glasses or something and can operate the camera remotely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be, be sick. There if are you're a director and you're Cyclops directors. There, there, I mean, there are some, yeah, there, are, there are some video goggle stuff out there, but I don't believe it's wireless. You still have to tether in. Um, well, as long as the US, the uh, HDMI cable is, is three or four feet, then that would be or, fine. I mean, yeah, I, I guess you could also go, you could also use it, uh, HDMI transmitter. And go mm. go in and out and do it that way. Although then there's always there's always issues of powering stuff as well, which is Shit. always a big it's just always a big uh, and the next hurdle to sort of get over with with monitors and that kind of technology. Barry, um, you're bringing me down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the, the the one thing I did sort of see interesting this year at NAB was um, small HD, which is a monitor uh, manufacturer. They just released a cool uh, five inch monitor, which mm-hmm. is the the perfect size yeah i think and uh it's it actually it's sort of a similar form factor to an iphone 6 um full 1920 by 1080 display uh, which also converts to an evf style device mm-hmm. it, and it's got uh, an interesting form factor too they use a mirror so that it becomes kind of a slim silhouette yeah so you can just kind of stick that right on the side of the camera yeah it's sort of similar to Sick. the uh to the amira area mira sort of viewfinder system so you know you can use it as an evf but then if you need to you know see a, a more monitor or utilize a more monitor type setup it'll it'll flip out and there you have your monitor so um that was something yeah that i'm sort of I, i'm probably actually gonna pick what pick one up for myself because it's something that i'm been, thinking about that as well yeah it's great great price point it does uh 3d lutz um, the lutz is is the thing that i'm most interested in the ability to kind of preview what your grading is going to look like is is sick yeah no i mean these days you know uh, for anyone out there like lutz or stands for lookup table so a lot of these you know modern cameras now uh output or record in like a log curved sort of image which basically means the image is super super flat kind of gray and gray and and not and muddy and 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 you'll see it on youtube too like some people don't know that they're supposed to grade it oh yeah this this is what an awesome camera looks like these days (laughs) i saw yeah i saw some video i think it was an ellie golding music video maybe from last year and i was looking at the image and i'm like this is this they just decided not to grade this (laughs) someone just forgot to 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 complete that step because it was so flat but you're right it's sort of it's sort of become its own aesthetic mm-hmm. that people sort of gravitate towards. Um, I, I, I'm still not really. It does fan. look neat. I don't. Uh, I don't know. I, I like my blacks black. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Call me crazy. Yeah, but uh, so yeah. I mean, th- uh, you know, to have you know, so so these you know these cameras are sort of recording in this mode. But if you're on set and you're and you're sort of you know you're you're any kind of image maker, it's, it's very sort of hard to get excited about the images you're making when they're that flat. Yeah, it almost takes it back into the old um, film days where you really got to trust what you're seeing with your eye is going to be captured by yeah. the camera and you're going to be able to get it. Yeah, you back can't. Post. Yeah, you can't trust video assist at all. It's not going to be even remotely close of what what it's going to be. Um, 
but uh, now with these sort of third-party devices, um, and even certain cameras now are are sort of building it into their into their system structure, like the the C100 Mark II. Now you can you can sort of uh, output through the HDMI a, a LUT, so that at least what you're sending to a monitor or video village to clients uh, is a, a closer approximation to, mm-hmm. to what the image could be um, and everyone can sort of get on board and, and, and be sort of more excited about the images you're making. Because you always need to finesse it in the end. You're not going to be able to just apply a lookup table that's going to apply to every no, you want situation. yeah, you want that flexibility to 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 be able to sort of uh, and, and as much information to sort of do with it as you need to later on. I think um, uh, the other thing that's powerful about it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're talking in terms of um, redundancy, um, being able to save uh, another feed of the video to your your monitor, does that allow you to to record internally and save to the card in the monitor? Yeah, I mean certain. Yeah, as long as you output the LUT through the camera or output the LUT through a third-party device before it reaches the recording device, then you can actually have, I guess, baked-in look dailies. Oh, I don't mean about that. I I just mean um, in terms of using the small HD. Mm. Um, does it record to both the internal card on the small HD and the the card in in the camera? Oh, I see what you're saying. So the uh, yeah the so well. Redundancy? The small HD does have an SD slot on it, the new 502 monitor. They've, small HD has, has claimed that it will record some uh, flavor, like some k- kind of proxy recording. Mm. What that actually means in terms of codec and resolution, it's yet to be determined. Oh, okay. So, so they... there's, it's, not, it's not actually that mo- particular monitor on like the 7Q or the new uh, like uh, uh, Pixie 5 or whatever that video device is making or, or uh, uh, Atomus makes a Shogun recorder um, it, it, that the 502 is actually not a recorder first and foremost uh, or in addition to it's, it's more of a monitoring device that at some point will be capable of some kind of dailies recording but I can't expect that to be I doubt it's going to be anything sort of uh, of a high enough bit rate to be usable hmm. unless you unless you go into the web or something but right right damn yeah <laughs> okay so um throw down the gauntlet uh atomos you need a five inch recorder because it's a better form factor for most cameras and same with the q7 that's too big yeah the q7 <laughs> is, is a beast it's huge it's just massive massive um monitor um and the shogun is a certainly smaller but you know that camera was certainly uh or that monitor recorder was, you know, was the first monitor recorder that could take the 4K uh, stream of the Sony A7S and, and do 4K recording with it. But if you look, if you know the size of an A7S, it's tiny. Mm-hmm. So in relation to the Shogun, uh, which is, I'm, uh, you know, I haven't used it, but you know, uh, I, I like the stuff that Animus is doing. Um, I've used some of their other recorders, and they're they're solid product, but uh, just way too big. Too big. <laughs> way too big. You don't need it that big. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I'm not going to, I'm going to be respectful of your time, Perry, because I know you just came from working and stuff and you're probably tired, but it's been a pleasure uh, yeah. nerding out with you. Thanks for having me. Over, uh, over camera stuff. Cool. And I'm sure that everybody in the audience is excited that I finally talked about something related to filmmaking <laughs> instead of just regaling people with stories from my sad childhood. <laughs> well, uh, I can hang around longer if you care to digress. <laughs> Can you relate? Did you also have a sad childhood? 
Um, not to make you feel any worse, but no, I did not. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. <laughs> most of the, most of my most of my um, art friends had like nice middle class like upbringing. Everything was pretty cool, right? And uh, they they're better people for it. Uh, these these people talking about how like a rough life leads to uh, to better art. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I find that I was talking to um, game designer um, Matt Hamill um, on Sunday, and. I think that what people underestimate is the amount of bold risk taking that's possible when you have a very supportive family. You know that you oh, can't yeah. fall like too far. Oh, that's and, huge. And it allows you to like take risks like I'll go shoot in Costa Rica or whatever. You know? Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly, uh, you know, have, have thought a lot about that. Um, you know, thinking about the trajectory of my career and how I've, you know, gotten to where i've uh, we've gotten to and uh and i uh, you're right a lot of that has been because i had a very supportive family who kind of allowed me to live at home for multiple years mm-hmm. rent free um and so i could uh take the risks that i needed to and, and and invest the money that i was not paying for rent thanks mom and dad um <laughs> into the the tools and and uh and uh, you know the, the tools of the trade in order to sort of learn my craft Absolutely. And I think that 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 ties into uh, what I was saying earlier about, you know, people, you know, don't be afraid to have a day job if that's what you need to do in order to make your art better. This whole like fake it till you make it thing where you've got Toronto famous indie um, rock stars and you visit their apartment and they're like living in in squalor right (laughs) and it's it's like the the fancy shoes and the 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 artifice this is all just like a stage play that they're putting on and uh you know you you think you start to wonder like it the thing that i hate is that like sometimes it starts to be it starts to impede the work going to the next level like Mm -hmm. if only they were able to just have you know, spend five hours a day working or whatever, they'd have that extra bit of money to buy the studio time that they need to, to boost up the production or the, but I think it's also, I I think it's, I think it's balanced too, because I think it, it can, and I've certainly seen circumstances where it's gone the other way Mm -hmm. that where, um, the, uh, the money aspect becomes so attractive that, you know, you, people find it very hard to let that go or, um, uh, you know, given the opportunity when you have those forks in the road in life where you can take a, risk. take a risk and go to the next level, mm-hmm. you sort of get kind of comfortable and complacent in the money-driven um, uh, choice. That is an excellent point. And I w- so I would add the caveat that what you got to do is find a, a, sense of, a source of income but continue living as though you don't make any money. And then you will build up a war chest of, of money that you can take risks for over a period of a few years. Avoid that trap where you're so desperate to pay your rent each month that it forces you into chasing paper where you go like, well, maybe I'll, you know, direct this. Right. <laughs> that sounds like your five-year plan there, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm already doing it, but I encourage other people to, to also do that. Don't let money make you into a crazy bastard. No, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. And I think also, and I think something also to be said about sort of finding, um, again, not, not to sort of, cause it can go to the extreme where you get comfortable and complacent, but I think also trying to find some happiness in, in what it is that you're actually doing. Like, you know, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do, um, 
it's not sometimes always the most exciting thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's not you know for listeners out there, it's it's not always sports cars and supermodels all the time. It just you know, it's it's just not. But you know, something that I've sort of come to realize in the last couple of years is just sort of that, regardless of what I'm doing in terms of content, um, which again is not always the most enthralling, exciting thing always. But I'm. I'm so content and happy in the process that no matter whether it is sports cars and supermodels or, you know, corporate CEO guy that I'm interviewing for the day, um, that I'm, I'm still setting up a camera. I'm looking at something through a lens, figuring out where the lighting is coming from and what I have to do. And that process never changes. It is always the same thing process every single time uh regardless of what it is what the content is and uh i'm i'm a guy that is very sort of happy and content in the process Mm -hmm. and that has definitely made um my life sort of easier to to digest and Mm -hmm. and and in in the things that i'm doing and that was that was the big takeaway that i had from the jiro dream dreams of sushi documentary Mm -hmm. that commitment to trying to do something at a world-class level is just as important as whatever your interest is Mm -hmm. you know trying to approach that mastery is enough to build a life around it's enough to build a career around trying to to get progressively incrementally more masterful at whatever your chosen expression is um is is a fascinating kind of thing and i think you only and you i think you only go out you only get get there by going out and doing it and doing it again and you know i always tell people just just get to the next job just mm-hmm. get to the next job like i see so many people get hung up so much about you know the current job and that is not to say that you don't do your absolute best and and put your heart and soul into it but at a certain point you just you got to sort of let it go and sort of look at what you've learned from this particular outing of that process and just, you know, pray to God that you get out, you, you get to go out there and do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, cause so many people don't get to go out there and do yeah. it again, you know, and, or never, never got the ability to, the opportunity to start. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You can, I think that you can get into situations where you're focusing on where I'm focusing on uh, the negative aspects of a, an opportunity yeah. Whereas like you look back at it, you know, five years later and you go like, oh, that was really cool. We we had that sound s- stage that we rented and there was, we got to use a smoke machine yeah, for yeah. This, that, yeah. rent a car. And yeah. uh, those are kinds of life experiences that regular people don't, don't typically do. I know. And it's, it's like that old adage, right? It, t- it takes 10,000, 10,000 hours to, 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 to master something. So it's like, you got to put your time in, you know? Props to Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> I thought Change of the world. Absolutely. So, Barry, do you have any theme music? Theme music. And what's do you that? have any guilty pleasures when it comes to music that I can overlay on your introduction? Oh, God. Um, it usually works better if it's something embarrassing, just so that you're relieved of the, the pressure of trying to pick something that's cool. I don't know. A lot of Taylor Swift? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm so kidding. Shake it off. <laughs> <laughs> or are well, you more of a fan of the the earlier country work? Um, I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna incriminate myself any further by <laughs> by further commenting on on said topic. <laughs> I'm sure I'll I'll leave it to your discretion, Jesse. Sweet, cool. Um, I also have been putting the uh, the challenge to um, different art friends that I have 
of coming up with a prompt. Hmm. Um, if you run into a, a cinematography apprentice and you wanted to give them an exercise that would set them off balance, maybe give them the tenacity that they need to become a working um, shooter, uh, think of you know some sort of torment that a uh, that a, ca- a camera master might put on their apprentice you know oh. what would it be what do you think is, is something that you can do as an exercise to uh to get your chops wow uh good question great question um advice i would give to young shooters i would say hmm i mean there's so many things but um I mean, I guess, I guess, well, I mean, I guess to sum it up in a very general level, um, and it, it maybe is a little cliche to say, but just, just go out there and shoot, you know, put yourself in a position where you're behind a lens and you're thinking about the way it's, you know, uh, thinking about framing, thinking about lighting, thinking about composition, thinking about move, how you move a camera and, and, and just go out there and do it, you know, grab yourself, whatever camera, like, you know, we've touched upon a little bit of the, the tech side of things today in this, in this conversation. But, um, I think the big takeaway is that, uh, at the end of the day, none of that really matters. You know, you, it's just a tool and just, just get your hands on whatever it is, um, that's available to you and, and start, start making stuff and looking at it, really looking at it and reviewing reviewing it um and and the and the second thing too to sort of think about is that filmmaking is a collaborative art mm-hmm. you know and so in order to do that you need to know people and so whether it be uh friends that you went to film school with whether it be your um immediate or extended family whether it be um people at your local film co-op um uh, or whatever, just just go out and start meeting people um, that have sort of similar interests to you and who who want to make stuff and 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 start forming you know coalitions and, and groups and uh, um, and start building a network. I think that's, that's, that's I think that that second half is is amazing advice mm-hmm. and it ties into my prompt. Um, my prompt is that uh, we all should write more fan mail. The thing about um, the new digital art world is that it can be a very lonely place. And you'd be surprised that how often um, there might be a favorite artist that you have mm-hmm. that has 20 million hits on YouTube. And they've never gotten any real feedback from that aside from YouTube trolling where people go like, this sucks. Right. Or that was good. Right. Um, the two or three times where I've gotten um, a piece of fan mail from just a random person, it really energizes you for uh, that time period and it makes you kind of more connected again to an older period in filmmaking where we used to have an audience that were people that would come up and, and speak to you. So I would recommend that everybody, you know, regardless of whether it's a band or whether it's a painter or something that you like, something that you see online, uh, take the time to just send them a two or three sentence email and just say that I appreciate what you're doing and I, I like I like your work because um, I, I think that uh, we need more human connections. Um, the internet has allowed us to, to throw bits back and forth with one another 
at an increasingly volatile pace, but we're missing some of the, the humanity from it. And I think we've got to bring it back. Oh yeah, no, I, I, uh, I whole, <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. You know, I, you know, when I can, you know, it's 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 sort of far and few between. But if I have the opportunity to speak to students or run workshops or um, teach a little bit, it's something that I sort of really enjoy and really welcome. You know, there's nothing like, um, nothing like sort of teaching to sort of illuminate uh, on, illuminate what you know and don't know about a certain subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting to sort of uh, see, uh, which you can only do by sort of human interaction, sort of see when a light bulb sort of goes off in somebody, when they sort of understand what you're trying to teach yeah. them or show them, uh, is a wonderful sort of uh, experience. And uh, and again, just I think fosters your own sort of personal growth. I love I love how you phrase that because there's a funny thing that happens sometimes where you didn't know how much you knew about a certain thing. It's like no one's really gonna ask it. Let me reflect on it. Oh yeah, I do know how to do that. It's yeah, and I think that's what I think. Yeah, I think and I think tying in, you know, the, the fan mail thing. I think just sort of questioning, um, be, or being questioned uh, by by you know an external source is always sort of a good thing you know and so i really enjoyed your question actually and the fan mail thing also extends to you know people who you think it's uh you you've already covered right like you'd be surprised at how often uh you know close friends don't they forget to tell one another it's like hey, by the way you're fucking great <laughs> they never tell you that uh yeah I don't know if it's if it's a cultural thing with Generation Y, but there's a little bit of a sibling rivalry that kind of happens with like friends. Sure. And I think that uh, the world's the world's too tough and chaotic a place right now. We got to start being a little bit more friendly with one another. Well, on that note, I, th- I think you're great, Jesse. Oh, thanks, Barry. I think you're great too. <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> the music swells. <laughs> All right, that's it. Cool. That's a that's another. Two hour and ten minute podcast for everybody who's looking for to fill that vacuum. There's a lot of people that are doing rotoscoping and stuff eight hours a day, and they need to fill that awful silence with, with talking <laughs> with my my jibber jabber. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. You are welcome. Oh, did you want to? Uh, do you want Twitter followers or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you guys are out there and have any remote interest in the. Uh, the existence that is my life. Um, you can check me out on uh, twitter.com slash Barry Chong. I'm not so active on there anymore, um, but uh, Instagram has sort of become my new uh, medium of choice. Just, Hot new platform. Yeah, I mean, I'm a visual guy, so I, I sort of I like the ingestion of, uh, of Instagram. So um, I think my handle is instagram.com slash Barry Chong dot D-O-T C-O-M brilliant yeah okay good night cool (laughs) yay sweet thanks barry yeah man thanks for having me that was fun we talked briefly about nab (laughs) yeah there's not really much to say i mean anybody who's is interested all of the blogs are are covering the same thing it's so So. comprehensive and and uh and there's so much repetition in in the vendors that you cover um that you can sort of you know there's only you could you know there's probably like 30 video on Kessler Crane if you really want to know what <laughs> Kessler Crane right? is. It's, it's so much out there. Uh, just really great. But. On my low moments, I'll, I'll sometimes realize that I've spent 
two hours just watching like YouTube videos that are <laughs> lens reviews of things of oh, something that I already own. It's just it's just I like hearing people uh, it's just validation of your own purchase to know if you sort of <laughs> if you uh, made the right choice or not. Yeah, something like that. I I guess I'm still in that kind of. Uh, that rosy period of like learning about photography and lenses and, yeah. and things like that, where you just like to hear the repetition. Yeah, going, oh, no, yeah, it doesn't. Speed. I mean, oh uh, yeah, shutter angle. Oh yeah, I know what that is. It doesn't. It doesn't. If you ever go away, you know, it's it, it's 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 a medium that it's so easy to geek out on, and uh, and sure enough, you you'll find yourself you have four hours down the road. Like, have you seen that angry photographer YouTube channel? No. Oh, it's kind of great. Oh yeah. Is yeah. this the guy just griping about stuff? Oh, he he's uh he he just he's so angry. He has <laughs> he has this one 27 minute tirade about why primes are better than zoom lenses. Oh, that's funny. And he starts going into the um the the uh, the physics behind it. Oh, okay. And he talks about how these are controversial ideas that have got him uh, kicked out of the physics community like he wrote oh, a controversial wow. paper about Nikola Tesla and the relationship of like photons okay. to glass okay and he he references it like several times over the tirade and how like you should read the paper and download it from his website and stuff it's so funny to me about those those kinds of people and uh, you know I, I might I might be occasionally wrong but I think it's safe to say that um, all those kinds of people are not shooting Mm. Like they're not, you know, they go out there and and complain about the stuff, but probably never pick up a camera. And I think that's what's sort of really interesting now is that they're, I think with the advent of, 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 of blogging sites and the internet and how affordable stuff has become, people have become um, collectors. Professional of, collectors. Collectors, right? Yeah. Where it's just about having the stuff and, and not using it. Mm-hmm. That, that to me has is, is been really interesting. Every so often, uh, Philip Bloom will like publish one of his short films or music videos or something on yeah. his website, yeah. and uh, people are kind of like, "That's very nice, Philip. Keep keep with the camera review." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they it's 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 like there's there's a romance that is coming through the review that is that is tied with like functional information yeah, that, yeah. that's what makes it work right and when you omit the functional information people are like they feel they feel they start tapping their fingers and they say like i should be working yeah this doesn't yeah. feel like i'm a working photographer anymore <laughs> right, when i'm right. watching camera reviews i'm still a working photographer <laughs> right <laughs> just an excuse to waste time mm-hmm. but uh, yeah like the collection thing is so is so funny to me But yeah, I, I, but it's like, it's like just go out there and make stuff, you know, and, and just, just use the stuff. It's like that's always to me the interesting scratch into a camera. Yeah. You know, you. I, I mean, I, everyone does it. You, know, you buy something and it's nice and shiny and mm -hmm. super precious with it, and uh, and you, you, you kind of don't really use it because you're so precious about it. But then you happen to drop it one day, and the moment you drop it or put a little ding in it, then it's like okay, then you start using it. I always kind of kind of look forward to the, the, uh, and sort of anticipate that first ding or first scratch because i know the moment you're gonna unbox that new canon c camera <laughs> and you're just gonna say like wow well that's there, over there with it is. and, you say, and but then, here we go but yeah but then that's when the actual you know usage of it really starts and kicks that's out. funny that you should mention that because i've heard so many times that um it's the hobbyists that are sitting there polishing their perfect cameras and reselling things. Yeah. The working cinematographers 
you know, they just they look at gear and they'll just like pull it apart and stuff. Is like yeah, I'm going to be throwing this in the back of the van and stuff. This is going <laughs> to these cables aren't going to hold into the side. You know, they're completely unprecious about. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I'm still very precious with the brand new stuff. You just just by human nature, that's just how it is. But my it's baby. Like, but you know, a year into you look at it, and it's all scuffed. It's like a, it's yeah. kind of like a, it's like a like a car, right? You you're sort of you're super precious with it. Like I remember my, when I bought my car, the, f the first like six months I had it, I would hand wash it, and just baby <laughs> it, just watch every little ding and scratch. But the nature of what I do, a car is is of it's about utility first yeah. and foremost, and and the one utility and and precious maintenance don't coincide with each other right that just it's, that's not gonna happen and uh and but so the moment you start you scratch the interior you're gonna scuff on the outside but that's then you start really driving the thing right yeah and using it for the fun begins the purpose of it right are you interested in uh, the anamorphic stuff that everybody's been talking about um i am yeah anamorphic is i mean i haven't really done i've done Nothing. I've never done anything officially anamorphic. I'm not, I've played with a bunch of different adapters and stuff over mm -hmm. the years. Um, yeah, it's an interesting way to. It's a different discipline, put it this way, in terms of the way you have to lens stuff. Certainly in the in the old school lenses, you know, you have to shoot them at deep stop, and you can't. You couldn't sort of frame things like too far on the edges because they just everything's just way too soft and not usable. Nice. Um, and so, um, it, again, talking about sort of like how a, how a, a, a technology dictates a style. Yeah, that's the perfect example where you just okay. Well, it looks terrible. It looks shitty on the on the outskirts of the lenses. So I'm just gonna frame everything center. Mm -hmm. And sort of embracing that um, is kind of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's it's something it's something cool. I mean, I would I would sort of, given the right project and whatever, try it out. It's expensive though to rent like modern anamorphic lenses. Yeah, they're coming out with um, because the GH4 has announced that right. it's 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 got an anamorphic mode. Right. I suspect that there's going to be a compact version that they, that somebody makes that's going right. to be really different. Yeah. Well, v Vedra, which is a company uh, by. Ryan something or other. He used to work over with Schneider Optics, which is a big glass manufacturer. So he just he broke away, I think, from Schneider and he's built these like purpose built micro four third lenses. And I think they're they're announcing a they've just announced a, a anamorphic lens of sorts and that should be fairly affordable. Oh sweet. Yeah. So that's probably gonna come to market soon too. I mean the whole lens market is completely sort of changed and uh, and it's 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 still a little bit out of the reach of the, the, the sort of common owner operator, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, a lens package is still twenty to thirty thousand dollars mm. for super thirty-five lenses, which is way cheaper than it ever was ten years ago. But twenty grand is twenty grand. Still. Yeah. It's still just outside of the reach of, of the common person. But um, I think what what also democratizes it, and this has always been the case, like it's twenty or thirty grand, but the resale value of lenses is is pretty good. Sure. So it ends up being like kind of an equity type of yeah, situation. Yeah, if you have the cash more. flow to yeah. to put it down to do it, it's always a good investment. Um, but I think as you know, super thirty five lenses are you know becoming more and more common. I mean, they are they are common right now. I think I think the lens game is now trying to catch up. Right. And so I think in the next couple of years, you're probably going to see more affordable primes um, that are pretty high performance sort of lenses. Um, and then what I'm waiting for is to sort of see a cost effective zoom lens. 
yeah come to the market you know the nature of what i'm doing is i just you know zoom lenses are just much more practical uh, as a reframe tool um but you know the, the, a zoom cine zoom is still you know 20 20 000 plus yeah so, i've never worked with the cine lenses before um primes or any or any of them any yeah. of them any of the is it uh is it mainly an ergonomic difference pro, pro, yeah primarily yeah. it's it's a focus throw thing so um and and also having a a, a manual iris Right, which is super nice if you just need to fine tune an exposure. Or... Well, what's neat about those uh, those speed booster adapters is right. they they add the manual. Do they really? Yeah. Do you want to see? Oh, uh, oh, for the Nikon version, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Canon one doesn't, I don't think. Yeah, because the Canon stuff is all automatic. Right. But um, yeah, it adds. You just gotta focus around the uh, ring. How's the ring? Oh, the ring. oh, I see, I see. But it's not in stops, right? Or no, it's not. No, it doesn't click. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. It doesn't read out an actual f stops. I don't think. Like that is that f four? No. no. It doesn't look like it. I'm not sure what the how like the like just a numbering system, right? <laughs> cool. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, and then yeah, ergonomics mainly from if you're working with an assistant, they mm -hmm. they just want more travel on the lens, so that if you when you you know you it's not just a, a slight turn pulls you from like on a stills lens you turn it this much and you're pulling from two feet to like 40 feet right, right? you want like a longer travel on the lenses so you can actually pull accurately one other thing that uh, phil bloom was was showing on his site uh there's actually companies that will convert um so like you can send them a sigma lens yeah. and they'll take the glass works and and yeah. put it into uh, different housing housing for or, uh city. Or, or they'll just even uh, or even just de-click the iris and put it like on a different mount. Like Matt, uh, Matt Duclos down in the States does a lot of conversion work. Um, and then there's a company, um, Lens, uh, what are they called again? I can't remember. They, but they do complete rehousings. So they'll just take the, they take the, the glass element and rebuild the whole thing from scratch, uh, which is pretty impressive. Um, there, 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 you know, and there, there are other sort of issues with that, but uh, like there's what they call parfocal. So, Hmm. Um, on a zoom lens like that's par focal if you zoom in focus and zoom back out it'll hold focus throughout that range right which is really important if you're working in critical sort of work um, but some of these rehouse lenses don't do that oh. and so that's sort of a, a subtlety that you, you know will become very apparent um, given certain circumstances right yeah but there's, I mean, there's a lot going on in the market now. It really is. It's everyone and like everyone and their uncles making something. It's really, it's crazy. And for a collector, it uh, that's 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 perfect fodder to. Uh, oh yeah, it feeds the machine. To feed the machine. Totally, totally. I. Uh, but yeah. no, it never ends. You, you know, it, it, there's always there's always. I'm I've, I'm at a point in my career now where I'm like I don't I don't want to buy anything more I do yeah. not want to buy anything more yes. I I just want to get rid of stuff which yes. is probably going to hold true this spring I'm trying to get rid of a bunch of stuff but I can find myself being like oh boy, this is really cool <laughs> you know and uh, I think just being smart about it like I've always sort of, like I said bought accessories and yeah I, I'm I'm much more interested I'm much more interested in lighting gear more than anything else. I uh, I was uh, years ago when I worked with uh, Christopher Mills. I yeah. one of the things that I thought was was cool about uh, his process is that there was just turnover, right. where each 
um, six months, he had budgeted like $3,000 or whatever to put towards gear. Oh, cool. And he would sell all the old stuff and get the new ones. So there was always the newest like Mac tower and there was always like the newest camera. And if you do it disciplined enough, you'll, you have a resale value for that stuff while it's still semi new. It's true. Yeah. You're right. Discipline is the key word. Mm -hmm. You really have to be attuned to the used market and really get on it right away. Cause the difference, like for example, with the the C100, you know, uh, probably like six weeks ago, I could sell that camera for four grand. Mm Mm-hmm. Four weeks later, or like two weeks after that six-week period, the camera, they Canon dropped the pricing oh. on, on a new body, on all the new bodies. And so now my... You'd still feel bad, though, if you if you came in under that window and the poor bastard that gave you the $4,000 oh, is feel like, terrible. oh, but, oh uh, no. Final sales, final sale. <laughs> but so like, but my, my market value went from four grand to, I don't know, it's probably sitting at 28, 29 now. It's just plummeted. Um, and that's the difference of like a two week span between right. four and two and some change. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. You, you really got to get on it ASAP when you want to get rid of it. Have it scheduled, you know, it comes yeah. up on your Google calendar yeah. prompts. It's like, oops, <laughs> time to sell the gear. Fire sale, fire sale. <laughs> get rid of everything. Right. So, so what are you working on these days? Mainly? Well, like I said, I was, I have a day job. So I've been right. building, um, work artwork for hotels. Okay. So uh, a lot of like installations and lobbies and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, hotel room art. We design and manufacture stuff like that. What's the company? Um, we're called PI. Okay. And uh, that's really convenient because the design studio is like 20 minutes from my house. Oh, that's great. So um, it's been a nice kind of thing to just have like proper cash flow. Because <laughs> yeah. like you can get into this this uh, this bubble where like you're kind of making it uh, you're surviving as like an indie director. And then you realize that like, you're only making like 20 grand a year. Right. And, uh, that can start to become a problem. Like as you move through your thirties and people start to expect that you're going to be able to visit, go to their wedding or, (laughs) or buy them Christmas presents or (laughs) all of that stuff. Uh, and I also just found that like my, uh, trying to uh, sustain that was affecting like my personal health too. Right. Because the reality of it was like I was hustle. I was a professional um, grant writer and uh, email writer. Right. And my hobby was like every so often I'd be able to do a music video. Right. And I just started to find that like, why not take this time and do work that I can make money at. Mm-hmm. And then every year I can, um, they'll they'll be the three or four projects that I can either figure out how to shoot on weekends or do for free right while I figure out what my next stage is I liked what you were saying about um, planning the next step yeah. up. I feel like the big tipping point that's going to happen now with creatives in the internet is like are you going to be able to stick around is is the biggest mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. line in the sand now mm-hmm. and I've been finding that if I want to be interested in doing like a narrative series or to do a feature film, I need to do things like this podcast um, to both be able to like have a conversation with you in Mm -hmm. a, in a structured kind of way, Mm -hmm. but also be able to mine out what um, I actually care about, you know, be able to find what are the, the human moments that come up when I'm having conversations with people 
and being able to capture it in high enough quality that like that might be your thing. So for right. instance, like there's been moments on the podcast where I've, where someone's told a story about growing up in Hamilton or whatever. Right. And, um, I'm getting, I'm going to experiment with, uh, going out into the field and like shooting some, um, footage of those areas mm -hmm. and seeing if that's enough, like to just take those human moments and pair them with an image, the, the image, right. because I, did you see that, um, Kurt Cobain documentary, um, from, oh, yeah, I saw a bit, of, a bit of it. Yeah. Not the new one. The, oh. There was one from like, uh, five years ago called, um, about a boy. Oh, did I? I don't think. No, I don't think it's, so. It's worth checking out. It's, yeah. You can stream it. It's yeah. online. Um, yeah. It was derived from uh, he had a tape recorded a conversation that he had with mm -hmm. a documentary filmmaker mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like really beautiful ambient photography of Seattle mm -hmm. and like teenagers and things. Mm -hmm. And um, just a person like talking about. Um, isolation and uh, puberty and, and growing up and mm -hmm. um, how that led to becoming an artist and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was so just effortless and uh, visceral. Mm. And I think that that's where my headspace is at now. Like right. after doing like so many music videos, yeah. I kind of want to get in touch with something a little bit more personal. The internet has enough magic tricks Right, and I'm kind of not in that headspace anymore, where I want to. And it's not authentic. You're, you know, like a, like you said earlier, like it really is about voice, and you can, you can only sort of come at anything you do in life f from your own perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, trying to deviate from that in any way it just leads to, you know, a, a certain, uh, a certain, you know, a, a feeling that doesn't that doesn't project authenticity i think to yeah audience. i was starting to feel disingenuous because yeah. um i don't watch music videos right and when somebody does put one in front of me i generally like skip to the middle skip to the end and go like ah, i got it okay um yeah and then when it comes to like indie features i've had colleagues and stuff right. from la or from here in canada that have have spent like four years putting together a feature film and they send you the link and it's like my heart breaks, but like, I can't watch it. You know, it's yeah. just like, I don't have time. And, uh, I, I maybe watch two movies a year, right. right? Like I have to reconcile to myself that like my life has moved on yeah. and I have to be open to the idea that media is changing. The most of the time I'm listening to podcasts and I'm doing visual art mm -hmm. and I feel like, um, I need to make work that kind of fits within those areas of, of interest. I think that's, I think that's important. I think, and I think it takes like, it takes five, 10 years to sort of even get to that point. You know, you, you put your 10,000 hours in, you're like, okay, well I've kind of more or less figured out the process of how to do these things, but now how am I going to take all that skill set and actually apply it to things that I actually care about and things that actually interest me? And that goes right back to that that, that sort of comment talking about talking to students. Like, just you want to know that after that that ten years, that you have things that you're interested in besides mm -hmm. the immediate function of making movies. Yeah, you know it, that you have other interests, whether it be in my case food and cooking, or whether it be the you know visual arts or sports or whatever it might be you know and uh, and be able to have 
to, to, to say something about those things. There's a great um, section in uh, the Beatles anthology yeah. where they're talking to John Lennon about um, about his his work and yeah. how his songs like evolved over time. Right. And he was saying that uh, when you're in your 20s, it's all playtime and everybody gets psychedelic and you do a lot of drugs yeah. and you've got this kind of unbound creativity where you're finding you're exploring the world and just making observations mm -hmm. almost like you're channeling. Yeah. And then at some point you get into your thirties and you start to say like, well, what's, what's the meaning though behind this? And then there was a shift in like his songwriting where it went from being these colorful abstract collages mm -hmm. to being just stories about his wife, stories about his baby, like right. what he feels like when he smokes a cigarette in the morning. Right. And I feel like the same thing's happening to me. Like yeah. I'm just, I'm getting, um, more and more impatient with artifice mm. where I want like the artists that I care about to make work that I feel like it, I, when I watch it, I'm learning more about that person. Mm. I come away with it with a feeling like, yeah, I've, I've connected more with that, that brain right, right. versus the, the type of work that some people make where, which it can feel completely anonymous where. Yeah. You, I think, and I think that's why I like working with real people, you know, there, there is that sort of connection there um that you have and you and you th there is something very genuine about that because you know it's a real person as opposed to a giant transforming robot <laughs> um you know that hollywood has churned out there there's something you know there's something very uh, there's almost a built-in visceralness of, because i mean certain stuff the documentaries i like are, uh, to watch are, are always about the very common human experiences it's not it's about love and loss and you know these very simple things but because We've all gone through it. Um, it just it, there's some an immediate sort of connection there, and then being able to sort of attach uh, a real factual person mm -hmm. as an image to to that experience just makes it that much more visceral. I think. Yeah. How do you and, feel about um, uh, learning more about the personal lives of of the artists that you like? Do you like? Do you? appreciate it more do you like keeping the mysteries mm. I've, I've run into friends where they're disappointed when they find out too much about their heroes about the backstory right. of a painting or like the backstory of a film um and the person behind it i always right. i'm on the other camp like i you know i and i like david lynch movies more because of the documentary stuff that i've seen about right. him it leads to um a yeah kind of... i mean i'm a yeah i i mean i i like i like i like people i like hearing people's stories yeah you know? i like you know I, I whether it's you know the 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 bank bank teller or 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 the you know the, the new pa on set I, I everybody has kind of a history and i'm always very interested to to know what that history is and so i think in that vein yeah whether if an artist has sort of done something or has done an interesting piece of work i would sort of subscribe to the idea and be interested in the idea of where that came from because that 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 perspective and what what led to that perspective to to, to make that thing you know yeah so, yeah i think and to me it, it's the fuel that i need i find it very inspiring when you watch a clip of bob kane talking about how he invented batman right and he's just like he's got that great um greatest generation kind of swagger where he's just like ah you know i i wanted to make a zaro ripoff <laughs> right but zaro rides a horse and right. people can't ride horses in the modern days so i made him drive a car <laughs> right. 
yeah. that was Batman. <laughs> he was Zaro in a car. And you go like, oh, fuck. That's how easy it can be, right? Like, right. sometimes the, these little throwaway ideas can end up becoming this sure. big thing. It's, it's like... You um, can't be too precious. A docu- it was a documentary. It might still be on Netflix about the, the Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually uh, my buddy actually produced. Cool. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's just like, it just, it's cool knowing the story about these two guys who just were like down in the luck and had nothing, you know, they they, they were like on their last dime and, and, and just, they thought it'd be kind of funny to, to, to write a, to write a comic about turtles who ate pizza and were ninjas, you know, <laughs> just combining all these three things and it took off, you know, and that's, that. That's interesting to me. Yeah, insane momentum. Because, yeah. like, are they involved at all in, in the last, like, 20 years of Ninja Turtles development? Or was it just the first comic book and then cash well, and checks? Well, they, yeah, they were involved a little bit. They were involved in the first couple of original movies in the 90s or whenever it was, the 80s. Um, and they were involved in that process. The newest ones, I don't know. It's probably not. It's probably just hmm. rights that were bought out. But uh, just to know that backstory yeah. and where it came from. Yeah, I'm always sort of... I'm always game to know that. I've always been suspicious that um, fucking Krang hasn't been in any of the the media since the the television show. Right. I have a feeling that those were characters that were written for the television show, and so they're not owned by. They were. I can't. If you watch the doc, there is a backstory of how how that came to be. It's, I think. Well, it was all in the vein, I think, of selling toys. Yeah. Right? And so I think that was. I think that was part of it. A memory is failing me now but uh there was some weird sort of interesting the toys are, are so superior to everything they else that they, they made so the toys good. are great so good <laughs> cool all right man i gotta right, go man. to bed early. but we ended up having like another 30 minutes of uh, <laughs> material yeah should part two part the turn off the recorder when the interview ends because people immediately get relaxed oh, and yeah. they start throwing all the good stuff yeah, right right same thing with like rolling a camera sometimes like I'll, I'll roll just a little longer after they actually technically say cut because you just never know what gem you might you might get um, that's one of the things that i love about that gh4 camera is that you load it up with like Card yeah, or whatever, yeah. The battery lasts like six hours. Right. So it just completely relaxes everything. Yeah. It's like magic camera. I'm sitting there like, ah, good roll out, good roll out. And then you got to decide like, do I do I delete it all? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's always scary. Just roulette, like spin the wheel again and see, see totally. what you get. Cool man.
Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, man. Hopefully, uh, it's not another six years. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm around. If I want to hang out, just let me know. Well, apparently not on Ronson's veil if I have a camera. <laughs> cool. Drive safe, man. All right, thanks, buddy. Have a good